my name is Buckley, initial S. I'm attending as agent this morning for the commissioner um, administrator, the Honorable Chess Crosby. I do apologize that we're starting a little late today. We had some technical difficulties. I would like to address um, the people that are attending online just to describe uh, the NCI to them. And then I would like to inform you of how we're going to proceed today and then just turn it over to you if you have any comments before we call our first witness. So for those that are watching online and are not aware of the National Citizens Inquiry, we are a citizen-organized and funded group that just had this vision of marching across the land with a set of independent commissioners to inquire into how all levels of government handled the COVID-19 pandemic with a view to getting to the truth and with a view to permitting ordinary Canadians to tell their stories and start a healing dialogue in this nation. We are <clears throat> totally citizen funded. We have no large donors or anything like that. It costs us probably about $35,000 per hearing. So I'm going to invite everyone online to visit our website and to donate and keep this marching across the land. I'd like to just turn then commissioners to what uh, the witnesses that we have for you today. We have a set of expert witnesses that are quite diverse. We're going to be dealing with some medical issues today. We are going to be dealing with some scientific issues. We're going to be dealing with some drug approval issues uh, with a particular regard as to children. We're going to be calling a, an economic expert today. <clears throat> some of the evidence that you are going to hear from these experts, you are going to have difficulty believing. And the difficulty is not that you uh, don't believe the experts. You're going to find the evidence difficult to believe because you do believe the experts are telling the truth. More importantly, we have a host of ordinary Canadians that have been brave enough to take the stand. And I have to report to you, commissioners, um, that we had a number of lay witnesses back out of testifying out of fear. And that in itself is real-time evidence of <clears throat> the fact that in Canada people are still afraid to basically speak out against the government, government narrative even if it's just sharing their own experience. And I hope you understand that the witnesses that have backed out from testifying had applied online to the National Citizens Inquiry website seeking to, um, to qualify as a witness. <clears throat> they uh, got through, um, we get so many applications that only a handful get through our initial sorting process. They got through that process and each one that backed out had been interviewed at least twice by two different interviewers. And then late at the day, they were too afraid to attend today um, and on <clears throat> the next two days to give their testimony because they were afraid of retribution. Some were afraid of losing their job. Some were afraid of social pressure from their families and friends. And again, that, that speaks as evidence of just how divided we are. And they got, that got me thinking because some of us have thought, you know, we've been divided into camps of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But I think it's more nuanced than that. 
I think it's really a division between people that trust the government and trust the, the mainstream media that are supposed to be competing with each other, but surprisingly speak with one voice in echoing what the government's position is. And so we have a group of Canadians that trust the government narrative, and we have a group of Canadians that are skeptical of the government narrative. And what has flown from that is that those that trust the government narrative have tended to become vaccinated. And those that don't trust the government narrative have tended to avoid vaccination where they could. And so when we think of the camps of vaccinated and, vac and unvaccinated, again, I think it's more nuanced than that. And <clears throat> I came to a realization as I was preparing to call witnesses for these proceedings because I was interviewing witnesses that were vaccinated and I was interviewing witnesses that were unvaccinated. And the thing that struck me was how absolutely identical they were. And so I'm going to ask everyone watching to have an open mind, because actually having an open mind is a decision. And if you have ears to hear, I'm going to ask that you hear because I think it will help us heal going forward if we understand that we actually have all had the identical experience. So let me speak about the experience of the unvaccinated. And I understand there's a whole myriad of experiences, but I think it's fair for us to say that a large number of people that we would call <clears throat> unvaccinated or a large number of people that wanted to be unvaccinated but became vaccinated because they had no choice. They were coerced. This group believed that the vaccine was dangerous. They believed it was dangerous to themselves. They believed that it was dangerous to their loved ones. And when I say dangerous, I'm referring to literally a, an existential threat. I mean, these people believed that they might die or be seriously harmed, or their loved ones, like their children, might die or be seriously harmed if they took the vaccine. Now, normally in Canada, you wouldn't uh, worry about having to take a treatment that you thought might be dangerous to you. But what happened was, is the government did everything, at every level, did everything that they could with the aid of the media to coerce the, un, the people that did not want to take the vaccine into taking it. And the vaccinated participated in that coercion. And I'll say that again. The vaccinated participated in that coercion. There was tremendous social pressure Business owners made it a, a mandatory requirement to have vaccination. We put pressure on friends and families that are still divided to this day. And so understand, from the perspective of the people that we'll call unvaccinated, you became a threat to them. They were faced, what they, what they felt was a life and death crisis for them and their families. And if you want to get people, especially parents, very concerned and very emotional, you put their children at harm's way. 
And so they had the experience, and we're just talking about the experience of both sides, understanding the experience. They had the experience of facing a life and death situation where the vaccinated were putting pressure on them and their families, and they felt threatened. They felt fearful, and then resentment came, and then hatred. Now, let's talk about the experience of the vaccinated because it's identical, except for the belief. But the experience itself was identical. And again, I understand that, you know, there will be a whole range of experiences and belief, but it's fair to say that a large group of vaccinated persons believed that COVID-19 presented a serious risk to themselves and to those important to them, including their kids. And when I say serious risk, they believed that they were at risk of death or serious harm or their loved ones were at risk of death or serious harm. They were fearful. This was their belief. And then along comes the vaccine, literally like a messiah. It was, it was their salvation, and it was put forward as a salvation. We have this crisis. We have this threat of death and serious harm, but we have the solution. We have a vaccine. If only, if only everyone would take it, we would be safe. But there was this group of people who we called unvaxxed, which in itself is a, a pejorative term. Our, our prime minister had some more colorful adjectives that I won't use. But we had this group, this tinfoil hat-wearing, selfish, conspiratorial group that would not play along. We would all be safe if we would get the vaccine, if we'd all do it, but this group wouldn't. And so this group, in the eyes of the vaccinated, posed a serious threat to their personal safety and the safety of those important to them like their children. And they were fearful. They were afraid. They became resentful and they became hateful. They had the exact same experience as the unvaccinated had. And I think it would bode us well to understand, as divided as we are, that we've all had the exact same experience. And we absolutely need to come together. And that's part of what this National Citizens Inquiry is intended to do. We've experienced with witnesses dropping out that this division in Canadian society, this need to follow the government narrative is still strong. Not long ago, we considered ourselves a country that cherished free speech. But there is an area of speech, because we still have free speech in a lot of areas, but where we don't have free speech, where your speech has a cost, is if you are now going to go against or participate in any activity that goes against the government narrative. And I think we need to understand that as long as we take that position, we're going to remain divided because that's what's dividing us. 
So <clears throat> it's somewhat appropriate that our first witness this morning is a, a Mr. Rodney Palmer, who is uh, a former journalist and is going to be speaking to us about matters of journalism. And before we get to Mr. Palmer, we're going to watch a video clip of some of the uh, news that in Ontario we would have experienced, just to kind of bring us back, back in time, back to remember why we're here at the NCI. Now, but before we do that, before we go into that clip, I'm just going to turn it over to the commissioners in case they have any opening comments or directions before we proceed. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Ben Messi, and uh, I'm a scientist by training. Uh, as I mentioned in Thor, at the Thor hearing, I've been in, I, I decided to get involved in this exercise for a number of reasons. But if I want to summarize, the way I, I would frame it is that we human beings live in a narrative. And the narrative is a kind of low-resolution representation of nature and reality. And the further the gap between the narrative and the reality grow, it has major consequences on, on our overall health and mental health. And what I found over the past couple of years is that the gap was really, really seriously big. And with my colleague commissioner, I decided to get engaged in this uh, adventure to try to write a new narrative, which we hope will be closer to reality. And from there, we can build a new reality, a shared understanding of the world we're living in, and live in a better, I would say, harmony with nature and our fellow citizens. And I wasn't requiring the commissioners to all speak if they don't need to. I just, if you had any opening comments, so. I'd just like to thank you for your opening comments and uh, reaffirm that, that we are here to hear Canadians and to follow the truth and the evidence wherever it leads us and keep an open mind. So if we can start with that video and just bring us back to some of the things that we witnessed in Ontario uh, while we were going through the COVID crisis. Thursday, he was taken to Sunnybrook, where he was quarantined. At a news conference late this afternoon, Health Minister Christine Elliott said all of this should give people confidence that the system works. The patient was detected and immediately put in isolation. Lab tests were conducted, and at the earliest signs of a presumptive positive case, Toronto Public Health launched extensive case and contact management to prevent and control further spread of the infection. Toronto Mayor John Tory said in a statement, Toronto Public Health is continuing to work closely with provincial and federal health colleagues to actively monitor the situation and respond as appropriate. Um, today, uh, also, I'm sad to announce that we've had our first uh, death potentially related to COVID-19. And <clears throat> that tells us that, you know, while we haven't had any so far, uh, it is a possibility we have been expecting to deal with uh, during this time. So it's not unexpected. But it's still a person and with a family and friends and, and we offer condolences onto the family in that because it still is a loss. 
and sometimes in some of these large events we, we lose track of that we want to make sure we remember that um, <clears throat> also the number of cases in Ontario has risen rapidly and over the uh, weekend um, we noticed that the cases moved from almost doubled from 70 to 80 up to 170 and that was a rapid rise and Dr. Yafio talked somewhat about those numbers here in a moment. So I'd like to call our first witness to the stand. It's Mr. Rodney Palmer. <clears throat> Mr. Palmer, can I have you state your full name for the record and then spell your first and last name? Uh, my name is Rodney James Palmer and it's R-O-D-N-E-Y and the last name is P-A-L-M-E-R. And Mr. Palmer, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? I do. Now, my understanding is, is that you have worked as a journalist in Canada for 20 years? Yes, I've been retired for about as long, but yes, I did. I worked very intensely as a journalist here in the country for a number of media outlets. And that includes uh, being a general assignment reporter for the Globe and Mail newspaper? Yes. And you worked as a daily news reporter at the Vancouver Sun? I did. You worked as a producer and investigative reporter at CBC Radio and Television. Yes. You were the foreign. Uh, you worked at the foreign correspondent, and you actually you were the foreign correspondent and bureau chief for CTV News, based in India, then Israel, and finally in China, based in Beijing. Yes. Um, can you tell us about uh, your involvement in reporting on the SARS outbreak in China? Because my understanding is you were there at the time. I lived in Beijing. Uh, and work for CTV News every day and that's when the SARS epidemic broke out so I followed it extremely carefully I went to um, weekly briefings with the World Health Organization I went to weekly briefings with the China Foreign Ministry and we attempted to cover the story as best we could uh, from there um, one of the significant stories that I worked on was um, the virus hunters. I thought this was a great phrase. What's a virus hunter? And this is a group of uh, academic experts that come into a situation like SARS when it uh, when it starts. And um, China uh, allowed them to get as far as Beijing, but they wouldn't let them come to Guangzhou, where it was believed that there was the uh, patient one. And they, what they were trying to find was patient one. So I had a little bit of experience with epidemics, pandemics, um, when um, COVID started and I started noticing that it was extremely different. I was watching it very carefully as the news was trickling out of China. It hadn't come to Canada yet, but when they shut down Wuhan, I knew that it was very, very different. This was something that had not occurred before. Now, and I'm going to skip over, uh, unless we have time later on, about your involvement with uh, reporting on biolabs in Canada. But um, you've been asked to testify about, you know, the standard process of news gathering versus propaganda at the CBC. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about that this morning. So to begin my presentation. Yes, please. Um, I started noticing that something very different was happening at the CBC because I'm familiar with the process. I wanted to talk today specifically about the CBC, although what I'm about to say goes for most media, news media in Canada. But the CBC is very different. 
If you're the Toronto Star or CTV News or any private entity, Global News, and you want to publish something that maybe isn't true or you want to take the position of a pharmaceutical company, you can do that. If you want to trick your viewers into something, believing something that isn't true, there's really nothing to stop them from doing that. However, the CBC is a public entity. We pay for it. It broadcasts on the public airwaves. And we expect them to tell us the truth because they've done it for 50 or 60 years. So what I started noticing was something very different. About a week, maybe two at the most, into the emergency, there was a story on The National by Adrian Arsenault, one of the greatest broadcasters we have, a national treasure. Adrian has a particular ability to appear to be discovering the facts in the moment, even if it's take 20. She can do it every time. She's a genius at what she does. But she turned this ability against us I saw a piece on the 4th of April where she opens up and she's looking at her phone and she says, what do you do if this happens? Somebody sends you a family text, say it's your father, and he thinks that the, the virus was manufactured by China. This is on April 4th, 2020. It says 2023 on the, on the slide, that's incorrect. It was 2020. And I thought, well, wait a minute, how do you know? It wasn't manufactured in a lab in China. What evidence does the CBC have 20 days into this or 15 days into this that this was not manufactured in a lab? There was an assumption that she put forth instantly. And then she went to an expert guest who said, well, don't embarrass your father. You'll just push him away. You've got to bring him in and you've got to kind of convince him. And I thought, well, I'm a father. Who are you speaking to? You're telling my children not to believe their father. You're telling, and I have some uh, expertise and some experience in this particular field. And I thought it was shocking that the CBC was trying to get in between me and my children. And the expert witness was from an organization called First Draft. And she simply says, I'm from First Draft. We're a nonprofit that helps people navigate misinformation on the media. And I think of nonprofits, I think of the Cancer Society, the Diabetes Society. I don't think of a group of people who are attempting to um, change the minds of strangers from believing things that they don't want them to believe. I thought that was all very odd. So I looked into First Draft, and I saw that this organization is, um, was developed and is developing new techniques and methodologies for investigating online spaces. Our latest approach revolves around the concept of recipes. As with food recipes, says their website, these, sets, these steps give directions to investigators or to reporters. So they give samples of what you can do. They say, here's an investigation. How anti-vaccination websites build audiences and monetize information. This is two weeks into the emergency. Here's the recipe. How are these anti-vaccination websites funded? Investigate the ad trackers with GEFI and DMI tracker tool. Now, these are tools that they provide to, apparently, the CBC. Now, there was a story that circulated later about anti-vaccination websites on Marketplace and how they make their money. So this first draft group is now feeding the CBC their stories. A second example, pro-Russian networks are driving anti-Pfizer vaccine disinformation. Now, I don't know why the CBC has to get behind Pfizer, who, which has paid out the largest criminal settlement in the history of American justice, but this is what this organization is saying, don't be against Pfizer. The Russians are behind it. 
The recipe was track misinformation across platforms such as 4chan, 8kun, and Reddit. So they're even telling them how to go after them, where to go after them. They're directing the CBC. I was astonished that this organization was put forth as an expert on how to not believe your father, but not embarrass him at the same time. So this, to me, had nothing to do with news gathering. Ten days later, after the CBC did that story, the Washington Post did some real journalism. They pointed out that the State Department cables were sent from the U.S. Embassy in Beijing to Washington in 2018, warning about the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that it was unhygienic, and in particular, they said there was a serious shortage of appropriately trained technicians and investigators needed to safely operate the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This was January 2018. And there was two cables sent, and the reporter saw one of them. The first cable, which I obtained, he says, this is Josh Rogan from the Washington Post, warns that the lab's work on bat coronaviruses and their potential human transmission represented a risk of a new SARS-like pandemic. So not only at the moment when Adrian Arsenault was telling you don't believe your father if he thinks it came from a lab, it was not only probable that COVID came from the lab, but it had been predicted that it would happen two years prior by the U.S. government. So how does Adrian Arsenault say it wasn't and don't believe anyone, including your family? Flash forward a year, Vanity Fair magazine, which is known for its excellent investigative reporting, published an extremely long and exhaustive piece where all they did was go online and look at publicly available scientific papers going back about a decade. The first one in 2013 was by Shi Zheng Li, who's the director of emerging infectious disease at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She's, she's known as the bat lady, and this is not a derogatory term. Actually, her scientist friends started calling her that because there was an outbreak of a SARS-like respiratory virus in a mine, and the miners died very, very quickly. And she is documented to having gone to that mine, scraped the bat guano off the mine and brought it to Wuhan to examine. In 2014, she began publishing about the coronavirus from Chinese bats. In 2015, there was another paper that Vanity Fair found where <laughs> Xi Zhengli discussed successfully inserting a protein from this Chinese horseshoe bat virus into the SARS virus of 2002, creating a brand new infectious pathogen. 2015, this scientific paper was published. Vanity Fair found it online. CBC could have found it, but they were too busy telling you don't trust anyone who believes this. In 2019, there was a paper actually published by one of the lab directors at Wuhan outlining the safety deficiencies in the Wuhan lab where he worked. And in 2019, right around the time that the U.S. government, the U.S. Embassy in uh, Beijing was warning Washington about a potential SARS-like pandemic leaking out of this unhygienic lab, a number of the Wuhan lab scientists published a paper together describing genetically engineered rats that they had, they had grown with humanized lungs and developed them in the Wuhan lab. So this is a pretty hot smoking gun coming out of the Wuhan lab. There are three labs in the world working on coronavirus, according to the Vanity Fair investigation. Two of them are in the United States, one of them's in Wuhan. If this thing started at a wet, mark outside the, wet market outside the Wuhan lab, it was because one of the staff members of the Wuhan lab walked into the wet market and brought it there. 
That is the most likely scenario. Now flash forward to this month, March 2023. FBI Chief, US FBI Chief Christopher Wray says the China lab leak was most likely. The quote is, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident. So the CBC had no evidence that it wasn't. They wanted you to believe that it wasn't. There's a definition of news gathering, and you'll see interestingly that news gathering is one word in the, in the English language. It's not two words as it, as it appears that it should be. And that's because it's very specific. It's the process of doing research on news items, especially ones that will be broadcast on television or printed in a newspaper. Now, how much research was done by the CBC to determine 10 days after the emergency that it didn't happen in a lab? Another definition here is propaganda. Persuasive mass communication that filters and frames the issues of the day in a way that strongly favors particular interests, usually those of a government or a corporation. Also, the intentional manipulation of public opinion through lies and half-truths and the selective retelling of history. This is what was going on in that piece. That's why it felt so wrong to me, because there was no news involved. There was only propaganda. What the Washington Post did with its lab leak theory story 10 days after the CBC said it wasn't from the lab was news gathering. It was investigative reporting. What the CBC did when it said don't trust your family if they think it came from a lab, that's propaganda. That's the difference in the definition of those two things. The Vanity Fair piece, reviewing scientific publications for a decade and cover, uncovering the fact that human lungs were engineered on rats in Wuhan lab in 2019 just before the outbreak is news gathering, exceptional news gathering. I'm jealous of how good that news gathering was. What the BBC did, reporting on the FBI saying they've known for a long time that it came from the lab, it was news gathering. That's kind of news of the day, daily news. They said it, we're telling you they said it. What the CBC did by warning Canadians not to trust their fathers about a lab leak theory was propaganda. March 4th, 2021, about a year after the emergency, the editor-in-chief of CBC News, Brody Fenlon, wrote on his blog, a recent survey found that about half of Canadians think journalists are purposely trying to mislead them. Well, that's because we're on to you. At least half of us pay attention to our gut. And we know that you are purposely trying to mislead us. But Mr. Fenland said that CBC is going to correct this. To promote trust in journalism, the CBC has joined four organizations. I didn't know that they joined these organizations until I began to look into this a little bit. One of them is called the Trusted News Initiative, which is designed to filter news through its own trust filter system. Another one's called the Journalism Trust Initiative. It's basically the same name, but this one uh, does more or less the same thing. Another one's called the Trust Project, and then Project Origin. And notice that none of these organizations have the word truth in them. If you tell the truth consistently, trust is automatic. If you don't tell the truth consistently, you have to say things like, please trust me. So I'm just going to quickly outline what these things are, because they're all basically the same thing. The Trusted News Initiative and the CBC announced together on the 27th, prior to the Adrian Arsenault piece, 
that CBC and Radio Canada are joining an industry collaboration of major media and technology organizations to rapidly identify and stop the spread of harmful coronavirus disinformation. I think the pandemic really started in China about four months prior to this, and four months prior to an unknown virus killing so many people, there is no disinformation. The scientists among our commissioners will tell you there is only information, and all information is critical at the beginning, particularly at the beginning. So immediately they were in a position of pushing one side of the story. Stopping misinformation means censoring. Censorship, pure and simple. The Journalism Trust Initiative, a second organization that they joined, is run by an outfit called Reporters Sans Frontières, Reporters Without Borders. And when I was working as a correspondent in the Middle East, the Reporters Without Borders would uh, take the side of, say, a Syrian journalist who was writing something against the dictator Hafez al-Assad and maybe had been imprisoned and they were trying to bring attention of the world to this imprisoned journalist. That's the kind of excellent work this group did. In 2020, it shifted completely to start something called the Journalism Trust Initiative, starting an algorithmic indexing based on their criteria to improve your revenues. Meaning if you, if you run your news organization through their filter, they'll make sure that it gets up to the top of the Google page so you'll get more clicks and more money will improve your revenue. There was an incentive there. Project Origin is another one that is, uh, the, it's a collaboration between the CBC, the BBC, the New York Times, and Microsoft. And one of these organizations is not a news organization, it's a tech organization. One of the things they talk about here is that they, um, the technical provenance approach, in conjunction with media education and synthetic media detection techniques to help establish a foundation of trust. Not truth, trust is what they're looking for. One of their uh, tools is called the power of the machine, harnessing AI to fight disinformation. So I can only uh, surmise from this that Microsoft is using AI to identify anybody speaking words that they want to identify as to be censored or call misinformation, label misinformation so you will agree with their censorship. The next one is called the Trust Project. Now this one is largely tech, Craigslist, Google, Facebook and Microsoft are involved. Again, helping tech support trustworthy news. Helping tech, what do we care about tech and, and, and truth and news? How are they together all of a sudden? We stand for integrity. They say, look for our eight trust indicators. We built the trust indicators. So they have listed, all they have to do is tell the truth. They don't need no eight trust indicators. And interestingly, Google, Facebook, and Bing all use the trust indicators in display and behind the scenes. So somehow they are censoring it before it gets to you. I'm going the wrong way. These are the members of the Trust Project. Now, this goes way beyond the CBC. Globe and Mail is also in there. CTV is a member. The Walrus magazine in Canada is supposed to be an independent thought magazine. They're part of this project, the Canadian press. So I put this up there to let you know that it is not just the CBC. The reason they all sound the same is because they're all part of this trust campaign. But the CBC is also part of something else. It's something uh, with just public broadcasters. It's called the Global Task Force for Public Media. Global Task Force exists to defend the values and interests of public media. Excellent. But it was formed to develop a consensus 
and a single strong voice among them. And that's the CBC, BBC News, ABC Australia, Korean Broadcasting, they joined recently, France Television, Radio New Zealand, ZDF from Germany, and SVT from Sweden. Now, I can't imagine having worked at the CBC for almost a decade and being told every day our job is to elevate the voices of Canadians on Canadian stories to unite our vast country and make us all feel as one. What single issue do we have with Korean broadcasting when that is our mandate? What issue does Radio New Zealand have with Swedish television when their mandate is the same to elevate their own people? This is a bizarre conglomerate of public broadcasters and I would put forth to the panel that the public broadcasters are the ones that are not easily bought because the advertisers don't exist and therefore they have no influence. So something else was done here. Now, the public task force is headed by our CBC president, Catherine Tate. She is the current president. Three months ago, she gave a speech at Simon Fraser University. The first word out of her mouth was trust. Trust seems to be in short supply. The next phrase is disinformation, conspiracy theories, U2 rabbit hole. This is the trusted news initiative mantra. This is what she was talking about at Simon Fraser University. She goes around, makes speeches, and says, please trust us. So let's get to what they do, in addition to the first piece that I saw in The National that rubbed me the wrong way. I listened to a piece one day in my car by Matt Galloway, again, a national treasure. I love this guy. When I first heard him on CBC Toronto, I thought, oh my God, there's a future. He might be the next Zosky. And then he turned on us. He did a story on March 29th, 2021, where he interviewed a guy from something called the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And I thought this was going to be about anti-Semitism or something, digital hate. Instead, the guy said, people who are recommending vitamin C intravenous and hydrogen peroxide nebulization are hate. And I thought, well, how is recommending health treatments. I mean, vitamin C intravenous has been going on for 50 years. It's used in cancer treatment. It's used in all kinds of treatment. Uh, hydrogen peroxide nebulization is a simple uh, drugstore hydrogen peroxide 3% mixed with water and vaporized into a mass so you clean out your nasal passage and stop viral replication and it's common. You can buy them. So how are these things dangerous? How are they hateful? It was, was particularly interesting to me. But the expert guest went on to say that these people will kill and he said that the hydrogen peroxide nebulizers, which are benign, are literally inhaling bleach. This is his words, literally inhaling bleach. It's actually not. It's actually literally a hydrogen peroxide nebulizer. It's literally nebulizing hydrogen peroxide. It's not literally inhaling bleach. Inhaling bleach is literally inhaling bleach. He lied. So why is he lying to Matt Galloway? Why is Matt Galloway letting him lie to me? on the radio. And I know it's a lie for a fact. The same guy from the Center for Countering Digital Hate, who also went on to say anti-vaccine misinformation is hate, which I believe diminishes the power of that word for all those who have experienced it. He went on Marketplace to say this, but then Marketplace took it to the next level. They became a censor. Marketplace reported 800 pieces of information to social media giants attempting to have them censored, claiming they were misinformation. And then they complained that the media giants only took down 12% of what CBC said was wrong 
on the internet. So my questions are, since when is the CBC deciding what misinformation on other media platforms is? What is it their business? They're the CBC, do your job, pay attention to yourself. Why are you going out correcting, in your view, what's wrong with other media? How is the CBC or Marketplace or this reporter qualified to comb the internet for 800 posts and declare them to be false? We never found out in the piece. And who at the CBC is the arbiter of truth and misinformation on the behalf of us Canadians who like to decide for ourselves? So I wrote a letter to the head of journalistic standards at CBC, Paul Hamilton, who has was since left the position. I asked him to do three things for me, please. I told him who I was and that I'd worked there, and I named some people that he would, we, we would know in common. And I said, please supply me with the policy at the CBC that describes the mandate to correct what you deem to be misinformation by other organizations. Please include the process by which information is deemed to be incorrect and therefore requires correction or censorship by the CBC. And I asked to please supply me with any other example outside of the COVID-19 story where CBC corrects what it deems to be misinformation on social media. Now, he did reply to me, but he didn't answer any of those questions. Another thing that the CBC has done very successfully is it's promoted a new identifiable group of Canadians and fomented hate against them, the anti-vaxxer. What is an anti-vaxxer? Who is an anti-vaxxer? Does someone whose partner had a severe reaction to the vaccine and was told they must get a second one if they want to keep their job and then they had a worse reaction and this happened and I've talked to people, I know it exists. And then maybe they don't want their kid to get it. Are they an anti-vaxxer? Do they need to be, have mental correction, psychological retraining? What does an anti-vaxxer believe? We don't really know other than it's bad and you should fear them, according to the CBC. There was an interview with a conservative member of parliament named Marilyn Gladu from Sarnia, Ontario, there were at a time when the House of Commons was about to reopen to parliamentarians. And a number of the conservative MPs had a very serious concern about the mandate against them. There was anywhere between 15 and 30 of them. They were starting a mini caucus of, I suppose, the unvaccinated. Now, Marilyn Gladys bravely took the interview with CBC about this because it was only going to go one way. And Katie Simpson, who again, an amazing journalist, I think Katie's fantastic at what she does. Pardon my language, but she beat the hell out of this woman on the air. Everything that Marilyn Gladue said, which was reasonable and thoughtful, Katie responded, aren't you just giving air to the anti-vaxxers? Isn't this giving support to the anti-vaxxers? The anti-vaxxer became the boogeyman in this story, and Marilyn Gladue held herself extremely well. And at one point, Katie said, are any of your unvaccinated colleagues going to try to get into the House of Commons? So I thought, wow, you've just framed them as like break-in artists or petty criminals here. And Marilyn Gladue answered, probably not. They need a passport to get in and they'll never get past the guard. And then she said, will you go to the parliament? And Marilyn Gladue very coyly said, well, show up on the day and see if I come. And she stopped the interview and repeated the question and said, this is a matter of public safety. Are you going to come? So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. 
Katie Simpson had no evidence and still has no evidence that an unvaccinated person is any more likely to transmit COVID than a vaccinated person. And we now know that there's really no difference. And if anything, if you have natural immunity, you're less likely to get it or spread it. She had no scientific evidence. She had no basis of it. This because this was not news gathering. She was practicing propaganda. An excellent example of CVC propaganda was a piece they had meet the unvaccinated. Those people who, who are these strange people? Why some Canadians still haven't had the shot? The, the sub-headline was, some suspect the science, some don't think they're vulnerable, and some just don't trust the government. There was no mention that the vaccines were not fully tested by the standards that vaccines have always been tested in Canada. No mention of that. People knew that, but there was no mention that that's maybe why they didn't want to do it. There was no mention of the adverse reactions that were already at this point being reported on government websites, including deaths from the COVID-19 vaccines. They eliminated that side of the story. They, they suppressed one side because it wasn't news gathering, it was propaganda. On January 15th, 2021, the CBC published a story where they said, talked about a, a scientific um, paper that was written by a number of esteemed Canadian scientists and academics that the COVID-19 booster shots didn't work. They were only 37% effective against Omicron. So the story was then updated. Somehow they shifted the data and it was, it was a slight difference. So the CBC story was the original study was seized on by anti-vaxxers, highlighting the dangers of early research in pandemics. In other words, don't trust the scientists the anti-vaxxers will, uh, will, will put their message out. So this study found that the boosters only worked 30%, they were only 37% effective. So the story goes on to say that um, the, uh, the study was revised, but not before being spread widely on social media by anti-vaxxers, academics, and the Russians. So we got some boogeyman in there, the Russians, but they're, they're, put, they're saying anti-vaxxers, this group they're fomenting hate against, is equated with academics now. Now they're belittling the academics because they don't like what they're saying. Not because what the academics are saying isn't true, but the CBC has a different message for us. So th this is the most mind-blowing part of this particular story. Just bear with me here for a minute. When the findings were updated with additional data, they showed very different results, say the CBC. The researchers found that vaccine effectiveness was 36%, even less, against symptomatic Omicron, seven to 59 days after two doses. So after your second dose, you got about a month, and then it's only 36% effective, with no protection after six months. So they were no good six months later. So by any measure of vaccine, they don't work, or our expectations of a vaccine, they don't work. But after six months, or after the booster, it was 61% effective one week after the booster. Now notice that so that's the correction. Instead of one week after the booster being 37% effective, it was 61% effective. This is a marginal difference. This is not a dramatic difference. It's particularly because there's a qualifying language, and I, I'm trained to recognize qualifying language because it's redundant and it should always be removed before broadcast. So it's, it's, it used to be called not ready for air, but now it's, it's broadcast regularly. So 61% effective one week after the booster, 
What about two weeks after the booster? They're not telling us. Maybe it went down to this 37. We don't know because they are selectively telling. This is, and the definition of propaganda, this is a half truth. It's not the whole truth. This is a collection of headlines that were between May 2021 and September 2021. And I'll take you back to this is the big push for vaccine mandates. The university kids all had to get vaccinated if they wanted to go to school. Government workers had to get vaccinated by around mid-September. I'll just read them quickly. A psychologist explains vaccine hesitancy. Experts weigh in on the possible factors behind hesitancy. Black Canadians are more hesitant about COVID-19, survey says. Vaccine hesitancy can make for awkward talks, like if you don't believe your father. Mediator says, these people were vaccine hesitant. Here's why they changed their mind, May 12, 2021. CBC poll, results give us an idea of who the vaccine hesitant in Alberta really are. Who are these strange people? University of Calgary Vaccine Hesitancy Guide gives doctors facts for struggling patients who are struggling with whether to take the vaccine. Now, none of these offer a second perspective about why people might be vaccine hesitant. They strongly favor one particular interest, and that is defined as propaganda, not news gathering. The next thing that the CBC did or in conjunction was the suppression of medicine. Ivermectin was shown worldwide to be effective, particularly in developing countries where they have it available because ivermectin is used there regularly. Now, on September 2nd, 2021, again, right around the time when uh, we needed to have no medicine because they wanted to force the mandate, Health Canada is warning, this is from CBC Broadcast, Health Canada is warning people not to tra take a drug meant for horses and cows to combat COVID-19. Ivermectin is a dewormer in animals and, quote, can cause serious illness, even death in humans. This is a lie that was told to Canada by the CBC on behalf of Health Canada. The fact is that ivermectin is human medicine. It's a miracle medicine. And its inventor was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2015. He sa it says, and this is from the Nobel Prize website, he cultured a bacteria which produced substances that inhibit the growth of other microorganisms. Maybe that's how it works. In 1978, he succeeded in culturing a strain called Avermectin, which in a chemically modified form, Ivermectin, proved effective against river blindness and elephantiasis. In fact, it eliminated river blindness virtually in South America through millions and millions of doses and nobody dying from it, like the CBC says you might. And this wasn't just the CBC. This was a global push to suppress ivermectin. An attorney general in the state of Nebraska decided to do a legal opinion and sign his name to it, in which he said in the decade leading up to COVID-19 pandemic, studies began to show ivermectin's surprising versatility, which is why it's used for things other than river blindness. By 2017, ivermectin had demonstrated antiviral activity against several RNA viruses, including influenza, Zika, HIV, and dengue. I covered a dengue epidemic in India in 1998, at which time the doctors told me the trouble with dengue versus malaria, where the symptoms are very similar, is there's, a, there's treatment for malaria, there's none for dengue, and that was 1998. So by 2017, they were realizing ivermectin 
was the miracle cure for dengue, or at least had been shown to have some positive results. Another review, says the state attorney general in Nebraska, summarized, and a review, of course, is a, a look at multiple, multiple studies. They review multiple studies and they come up with a final conclusion. It summarized the antiviral effects of ivermectin demonstrated through studies over the past 50 years. It wasn't new and it wasn't deadly. And Mr. Palmer, I'll yes. just let you know we're about 10 minutes just to help time yourself. Okay. Thank you. So the Alberta Health Services on October 5th had published on their website that it is, uh, ivermectin is FDA and Health Canada approved for people, not just cows and horses. It is used to treat parasitic infections, intestinal affections, and now even rosacea. The Indian Express wrote that the state of Uttar Pradesh, which has a population of about 250 million people, had dramatically reduced the COVID positivity rate and eventually, three months after this published article, reduced the COVID death rate to zero in Uttar Pradesh. So when a doctor named Daniel Nagase walked into a emergency room in Alberta and found three people dying of COVID. Their charts showed that they were getting worse every day. He decided based on the Alberta Health Services, based on these stories out of, um, out of Uttar Pradesh, to ask them if they wanted to try Ivermectin. It was their choice. They all said yes, and they all got better. Then he was fired for doing that. He spoke out about that, and somebody recorded it and put it on a social media, and the CBC did this story. Doctor who says he gave ivermectin to rural Alberta COVID-19 patients prompts a warning from the health authority for spreading misinformation. In the same story, it, he says the drug worked quickly, allowing all three to leave the hospital. And I called Daniel Nagase, Dr. Nagase, I interviewed him, and he said one of them was 90 and he went back to his nursing home. They almost got completely better within 18 hours, but another Alberta Health Services medical director barred the patients from getting any more of the drug. Can you imagine if you can't breathe and somebody gives you a pill and you can breathe and another doctor comes in and says you're not getting any more? That happened. It's in this CBC News story. And they went after the guy who cured them. Dr. Nagase was removed from the hospital and relieved of his medical duties the following day. The story here is that a doctor cured COVID with a pill that cost a nickel that's already been working all around the world. We can all go back to our hockey rinks. We can all go back to our jobs. We don't need the, the experimental vaccine. There's a pill. All we have to do is put a good supply in every hospital in Canada. And if anybody gets sick enough that they can't breathe, they go into the hospital, they're administered ivermectin, and 18 to 36 hours later, they're breathing and they go home. End of pandemic. Dr. Nagase should be on a stamp. 20 years from now, there should be a little vignette about that moment when he decided, I'm going to try this drug and end COVID-19 in Canada. Instead, the CBC went after his throat because it's propaganda. It's not news gathering. This is the photograph on the slide here of the ivermectin from the CBC website, under which the cut line says, ivermectin is used primarily to rid livestock of patients. I'll draw your attention to the box in the photograph's hands and the, and the yellow on the right-hand corner where there is a picture of three human beings. So this is international and multilingual. There's an adult and an adolescent and a baby. And the baby has an X through it because you give uh, babies ivermectin in a liquid suspension so they don't choke on the pill. This is human ivermectin photograph on the CBC website and they're saying it's for livestock. This is a lie. 
a half-truth, disinformation, propaganda brought to you by the CBC. What the Indian Express did by telling what the Chief Minister uh, said about ivermectin's success was news gathering. What the CBC did saying ivermectin is for horses and cows and can cause death was a lie and it was only propaganda. There's no other way to describe it. Quickly going, because I'm running out of time here, to the Freedom Convoy. I happened to be in Ottawa visiting friends. I had been doing some volunteer work with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, which is an excellent group of scientists, and I encourage everyone to look at their website if they're looking for truth instead of trust. This, there's a photograph here of your witness standing uh, in front of the uh, Peace Tower in Ottawa, looking down on all the Canadian flags, the Quebec flags, the Freedom Convoy. These are the photographs I took. Families, somebody holding the Charter of Rights, freedom, lest we forget, from the, um, from the vets, and God bless. This is what I saw, and the very first report on the CBC was by an excellent reporter named David Common, and he's walking, you can look this up, he's walking through the crowd, and he's feeling that positive energy, and he, he can't even contain himself. He says, it's a party, there's jubilance, thousands of Canadians protesting the mandates. That was day one. On day two, these pictures emerged. Nazi flag. Confederate flag. I, we, the Canadian Confederate flag is largely meaningless in Canada because it doesn't have any history in our country, but it is a symbol of hate and it's used as a symbol of hate. So when these photographs emerged, our Prime Minister came out and condemned the hateful rhetoric. He said he will not meet people who promote hate. So that was it. If they are, if that's 100,000 Nazis out there, and I don't know where we were hiding them before this day, but we had 100,000 Nazis, according to the Prime Minister, who are promoting hate, end of story, no meeting, not going to discuss your issue. So I did what any journalist would do, and I looked for a reaction story. The Prime Minister says this about you, what's your reaction? I went up and I knocked on the very first truck that was very close to the CBC building, maybe about 200 meters from the CBC. I knocked on the very first truck and I interviewed the very first trucker. What would you say to the politicians like Trudeau, Singh, the uh, mayor of Ottawa, who say this is a, organized by the far-right extremists and the racists? I'd say you're all lying. You know you're lying. Look at me, look at every, look right around in Ottawa. There is, we are from every nation, every country, every background, every color that you can possibly find, you can find in Ottawa in the last couple of days. You know you're lying and that's false. And like a good journalist, I went to the next truck. I didn't just take his word for it, that he wasn't a white supremacist. I asked this man at the very next truck, is uh, uh, a group of far-right extremist racists. That's, that's just garbage. That's hogwash because there are people from all walks of life out here, right? I'm a man of color, right? I have every few trucks to go down, there's someone of color here, right? There are people in the street that are colored. I, I'm not too sure where they're getting that from or who they're looking at or who they're talking to because this is nothing like that, right? There might be a few folks here who, um, um, want to spread different agenda and try to tarnish what we stand for, but that's um, them saying a far-right movement, that's, that could not be far from the truth. Why are you really here? I'm here to stand up for fellow truckers and um, push back because the government keep pushing us, pushing us, and um, it's not democratic anymore if the government will try to control the people and forcing you to do things against your will. Why weren't these guys on the CBC? It's their job to go out and do a live. It's not even hard. They just had to walk. It was right outside their door. I asked 
I went out and I found another guy. Look at this guy. Do I look like a white supremacist to you, says this man of color. He is a very interesting guy. He got, when he heard about the trucker convoy, he was living in Calgary. He got in the car with his wife and his very young child. I think his son was about four. And they drove all the way to Ottawa to support. But these three pictures were defining that movement. The Nazi flags and the Confederate flags, and I thought, I didn't see them. I was there those first five days. I didn't see any of these flags. Rebel News, which is an alternative news, which was marginal because it's largely a conservative uh, mouthpiece, I guess you would call it, uh, trying to get rid of Trudeau and, and put a conservative government in. That's kind of their, their position. But during the last three years, they, there's been more truth on Rebel News than I've seen on any other media in all of Canada. And I say that as an experienced journalist. Their uh, intrepid reporter, Alexa Lavoie, who I think is one of the greatest investigative reporters in Canada today, noticed that these three pictures were taken by three different people. One of them by David Chan, a longtime liberal photographer. One of them by Andrew Mead, a known a Trudeau photographer. And another by Randy Boswell, who's a, who's a, a, a reporter, a writer, I guess. Um, but he writes a lot oh, using uh, about misinformation, anti-vaxxers, uh, conspiracy theorists. This is his, his... So how did they all get in the exact same place? She noticed that the Peace Tower is in the same aspect ratio, the same distance, depth, as in all of the three pictures. All of three of these people were in the exact same spot when that guy unfurled that flag. She was curious about that. These two pictures were the only ones seen of the Nazi flag. And the reason there's still pictures is because it wasn't unfurled long enough for any of the 10,000 cameras in the place to see it and film it. She went to the first one on the left and she found that it's a little parkette setting. She, she, went, she found the setting and she noticed that it was nowhere near the protest. It was down on a little walkway. So this entire thing with all these flags was staged, according to the report. The second one on the right is very interesting because the camera angle is from down below. And she tried to reproduce that camera angle, but she had to go down to the Redo Canal, which was locked and closed because um, they do that every winter because of the snow and it's for safety reasons. So she wondered how did someone get down to that spot in a locked and closed area at the moment that that flag was unfurled, and she pointed out that it was on the west wall of the Chateau Laurier Hotel next to the Parliament buildings, and that angled staircase only exists in one spot, and as soon as he's up to the pillar, he's on Wellington Street, and nobody saw the flag on Wellington Street or filmed the flag on Wellington Street. So that was the moment that that flag was unfurled, and there was a photographer there at the moment to take the picture. So how did that get out so far? She discovered, Alexa Lavoie and Rebel News discovered that the first person to tweet that picture of that nasty flag, that, that nasty flag, it is a nasty flag, the Nazi flag, was Justin Ling, the CBC reporter. CBC website says Justin is award-winning investigative journalist who specializes in stories that are misunderstood. Justin said he didn't want to reveal his source who sent him that photo. I've seen a, several of Justin's pieces and he almost never reveals his source. You have to trust and, and he Mr. believes it. Mr. Palmer, I'm yeah. going to have to cut you short and allow... You want me to stop now? Yeah, and allow the commissioners. They might have a couple of questions for you, and then we have to take a break. Okay. So, Dr. Malone, can I ask you to, for the record, state your full name and then spell your first name and last name for the record? My full name is Robert Wallace Malone. R-O-B-E-R-T-M-A-L-O-N-E. And Dr. Malone, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? 
I do so swear. And you had provided with me, uh, to me earlier, a copy of your CV, which I've entered as an exhibit in this matter, TO-23. And can you confirm that the CV you provided is accurate? It is accurate to the best of my knowledge. And Dr. Malone, I'm going to ask you to just take a bit of time and, and share with the commissioners your involvement with the mRNA technology, your initial opinion about the mRNA vaccine, and whether or not you changed your mind about it. Uh, my involvement in the platform technology of the use of mRNA for a drug or for vaccine purposes begins in approximately 1987 at the Salk Institute uh, uh, Laboratories of Molecular Virology under Dr. Inder Verma, in which I was investigating the uh, um, relationship of RNA sequence in structure to retroviral packaging. In order to do those studies, I needed to develop a system for uh, producing large quantities of purified mRNA, which had uh, the necessary genetic elements to ensure efficient translation. So I uh, developed that system for manufacturing, purification, and uh, um, uh, demonstration of the sequences necessary. And then uh, uh, tested that uh, material, that composition of matter, for delivery into a variety of cells using all known uh, delivery methods, including liposomal delivery methods available at the time, none of which were uh, sufficiently efficient to allow any studies of gene expression off of such a RNA and uh, verify the functional aspect of the RNA in cells. And uh, then had an opportunity to test a new technology that had been developed at Syntex Laboratories in Palo Alto involving the use of positively charged fats, otherwise known as cationic lipids, and their formulations to form self-assembling particles. These are referred to as self-assembling nanoparticles and are not liposomes. They're very different in composition, but they do involve lipids. Uh, that Once that suite of technologies were assembled, um, and even in anticipation of uh, future studies in collaboration with Centex, I filed patent disclosure for the use of mRNA as a drug in all of its applications from the Salk Institute. I believe that was 87 or 88. I have that document. And then uh, it was countersigned appropriately by a postdoc in the lab and uh, then uh, showed that this would be reduced to practice for purpose of expression in all cell types identified at the Salk Institute, including insect cells and human cells and a variety of other sources, and then uh, um, demonstrated that this was uh, able to uh, deliver mRNA into embryos in uh, uh, Xenopus labus, this is the African clawed mo uh, frog model that's commonly used in embryology, and create transgenic Xenopus labus embryos, or otherwise known as tadpoles. And then in chick embryos, 
there was an ensuing set of uh, patent disputes between the Salk Institute and the University of California, San Diego, which I was a student at, um, and uh, various professors asserting their uh, primacy or, or involvement in the invention. Um, I left the Salk Institute with a master's having passed my PhD exams in lieu of a PhD uh, after uh, developing PTSD and a nervous breakdown in the midst of the battles over uh, my invention. I then joined a company called Vical, which was uh, initially located across the street from the Salk on Torrey Pines Road in San Diego, and there had a series of additional uh, um, discoveries having to do with both the delivery into mammals in a mouse model, as well as uh, the use of the technology for vaccination purposes and its reduction to practice to elicit immune responses against influenza and AIDS or HIV antigens. I then left uh, Vical and went back and finished my MD and then uh, returned to UC Davis as an assistant professor, obtained uh, uh, about a million and a half dollars in grants uh, to pursue that research, and carried on with uh, development and testing of a variety of catenic liposome formulations, including in collaboration with Beringer Monheim and Promega. Uh, some of those compounds ended up uh, being marketed by Promega, Many patents uh, came from that, including the nine original patents that were filed between 1990 and 1991 uh, that uh, cover uh, the use of mRNA for drug delivery purposes as well as for vaccination purposes and the demonstrated reduction to practice. So uh, I am in fact the original inventor and uh, played a key role in the uh, series of inventions, and uh, am a named inventor on all patents uh, relating to these initial discoveries. Uh, so uh, that's that's my contribution. Uh, and and for instance, these uh, patents that are on the wall behind me are examples of uh, those nine issued patents having to do with uh, DNA and RNA. Uh, delivery into mammals and cells for the purpose of eliciting an immune response. This is well documented in all those patents, now, which, by you... the way, were not cited by Moderna in their patent positions, nor apparently by CureVac or uh, um, BioNTech. So there is a failure to cite uh, prior literature on the part of all three of those companies. And if I can just uh, interrupt you, so with that background, uh, with mRNA technology. Can you tell us what your initial opinion towards the COVID-19 vaccines with mRNA va uh, technology was, and then if your opinion changed? My uh, initial opinion about uh, all of these genetic vaccines, as well as the standard vaccines that include full-length spike protein, is that they are encoding a toxin. Um, I was very early in uh, um, raising concerns that the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2 is functionally toxic. It is a toxin. And I was particularly alarmed by the uh, reports I was hearing from Canadian physicians, who I will not name because they've been attacked by the uh, 
uh, Canadian government uh, and had their offices raided. But uh, they reported to me very early on about uh, the uh, enticement, coercion, uh, of particularly of children, uh, to accept these products and uh, also the uh, suppression of information about the adverse events. My initial objections were that uh, when I uh, was notified by a CIA officer who was in Wuhan apparently on January 4th, 2020, of this novel coronavirus and the biologic threat that it represented, I performed as is my usual practice because I am an experienced leader of teams in biodefense and a response to uh, uh, emerging infectious disease. I performed a threat assessment and determined that the most expeditious and highest probability uh, pathway forward to protecting the population from death and disease due to this agent was to focus on repurposed drugs. And I, my determination was the normal pathway for uh, the accepted, the internationally accepted pathway for development of a vaccine that was safe and effective would take far too long, typically many years. When I learned that these products were being advanced as gene therapy technologies, uh, I was well, very well aware of the history of uh, relative uh, effectiveness and safety of adenovirus vectored products, although concerned about such vaccine products employing a full-length spike protein, whether or not it has the two proline mutations that are in these current spikes um, that are used in the adenovirus vectored vaccines. And I was also concerned about the mRNA technology. In particular, it had a long history of uh, inflammation, uh, both uh, within any tissues in which it was administered. Uh, and um, the, this had been my experience as an academic researcher. And one of the reasons why I had abandoned this technology was because I could not overcome the toxicity or, or inflammatory responses associated with these uh, lipid uh, mRNA particles, assembled particles. Uh, I Early on, when I learned that this was being advanced as the primary candidate by the United States and others, I contacted uh, the um, uh, University of British Columbia investigator who is behind uh, the most important advances associated with uh, these newer formulations, which are an improvement for in vivo delivery on my original technology platforms, and uh, inquired of him uh, what was the full composition and nature and logic of the uh, formulations that were being advanced clinically. And uh, I was reassured by him that the inflammatory problems that I had encountered uh, had been resolved with these newer formulations and that they uh, um, had um, solved the problem of tissue targeting by identifying uh, specific cationic lipid structures that would uh, cause the uh, formulations to remain localized in the draining lymph nodes from the tissues from whence uh, at the site of injection. So I was uh, reassured that this was the case. Um, uh, and then uh, um, as, as this new information came out about the 
as the vaccines began to be deployed about the adverse events associated with them and the suppression of those adverse events in a systematic way by the Canadian National Health Service, that's that's when I really became more alarmed and wrote a key paper, I think perhaps the initial paper, concerning uh, the bioethics of what was being done and the failure to provide informed consent uh, and to require informed consent in deploying these products, as well as the coercion that was being uh, deployed by the Canadian by many governments, uh, particularly in the West. And uh, then uh, Dr. Byron Bridal identified the common technical document is the regulatory term, which had been filed by Pfizer with many nation states, including the uh, Canadian government and the US government, but had been placed on a Japanese uh, regulatory authority server and uh, was identified by Dr. Bridal who uh, reviewed it um, and then asked for a second opinion uh, from a news organization called Trial Site News that I had some affiliation with. And those documents were passed to me for my own review and assessment as I'm a regulatory affairs and clinical research, clinical development specialist. And uh, I, I was shocked by what I read uh, in that those documents clearly demonstrated a failure to comply with international and uh, U.S. norms for uh, uh, preclinical assessment of uh, vaccine products and uh, preclinical assessment of gene therapy products, uh, these all being based on gene therapy and so were gene therapy products and remain so. Uh, and Dr. Then, Malone, can I just uh, interject for a second? Yep. Because I, we're going to segue in a, a few minutes. You were going to speak about um, what you describe as fifth generational warfare. But before we go there, I'm just wondering if you could comment on Canada's policy of using these um, mRNA vaccines on children. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, having studied the data, the risks of uh, hospitalized disease and death in children are statistically negligible, approximating zero, uh, very close to the asymptote of zero. So functionally, virtually no risks of the virus in healthy children. Healthy children handle this infection extremely well, but the risks of uh, the vaccine, particularly the mRNA vaccine, all of the genetic vaccine products that express spike protein, as well as those that have uh, pre-manufactured full-length spike protein, have significant risks in children. In particular, those risks are enhanced in young males. Uh, and in particular, there is a very clear, unequivocal, well-documented risk of myocarditis, that depending on the study, clinical myocarditis event rate in young males is in the range of 1 in 1,500 to 1 in 3,000, depending on the study. Um, and the overall event rate for serious adverse events for these products may be as high as, as 1 in 500. That's uh, events that would cause people to be hospitalized. And clearly, given that there is no uh, uh, significant clinical risk in children, 
uh, associated with the virus itself, the risk-benefit ratio of these products um, uh, to the risk of the uh, virus itself absolutely does not justify vaccination in children. And the, the data indicate that children can be damaged in their brains, in their endocrine system, in their heart, in their reproductive system, and in their immune system responses. Particularly, there seems to be a dose-dependent effect of these toxicities in children and in adults. Over. Thank you. Can you um, can you share with us your your recent conclusions and research into what you've termed as fifth generation warfare? Yeah, give me a moment to uh, arrange the screen because I'm going to have to share uh, um, uh, the screen. One moment. Okay, um, uh, are you seeing uh, a screen, splash screen, that says fifth generation warfare and sovereignty? Yes, we are, and that's on the full screen. Okay, so uh, proceeding with that then. Um, uh, so I'm going to speak now about the basically the psychological operations that have been undertaken by particularly the Five Eyes nations of Great Britain, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, and their intelligence communities and military. ...referred in the industry to fifth-generation warfare. Uh, and in, in the COVID crisis context over the last three years, we have had clearly documented, including in Canada, um, the deployment of military assets, ergo personnel, and their technologies uh, on civilian populations under the logic that it has been necessary to uh, coerce, compel, entice, and otherwise convince the civilian populations to accept these unlicensed medical products that are neither safe nor effective that have been marketed as vaccines but which do not uh, perform as vaccines in the sense that they do not prevent infection, replication, uh, uh, distribution to third parties, uh, disease or death associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, and so in sum, what has been done to us in terms of the PSYOPs and the general term or the technology deployed is fifth generation warfare. So I'm going to introduce the audience uh, in this testimony to fifth generation warfare and its deployment during the COVID crisis. Uh, fifth generation warfare is termed a war of information and perception. Uh, in order to understand it, you need to understand that fifth generation warfare is not a fight over, it's not used for conflict over territory but rather it is designed for conflicts uh, to influence thought, belief, and emotion. Um, the first example of fifth-generation warfare in the modern era that was deployed was uh, Twitter and Facebook 
having been deployed during Arab Spring in order to influence uh, behavior of crowds uh, during that uh, um, uh, social protest movement in the Middle East. Uh, it is not a perfect example of fifth generation warfare because in fifth generation warfare, the uh, perpetrators, the opposition is is typically unclear. It, it Fifth generation warfare seeks to mask um, the involvement of whoever it is that's waging that conflict. But uh, absolutely, fifth generation warfare was a component of Arab Spring. And during Arab Spring, a key fifth generation warfare device or weapon was deployed, and that is Twitter. Twitter is both a weapon and a battlefield in the uh, new world of fifth generation warfare. Twitter is specifically designed and has capabilities to uh, map and influence behaviors of individuals and crowds and uh, down to the level of mapping their emotions, uh, thoughts, opinions, and their ability to influence others. This is why you experience things like shadow banning or amplification of a given tweet or message on social media is this is typically algorithmically based uh, alterations in the distribution of information and its emotional content to uh, those that are participating in social media platforms. Of course, all these social media platforms have the ability to precisely triangulate individuals in three-dimensional space because of cell tower triangulation. And they are typically integrated in the intelligence community into functions such as Gorgon Stare that provides extremely high-resolution imaging of individuals and can be used to target individuals both emotionally, psychosocially, as well as with kinetic weapons if necessary. Over the last three years, Western governments, non-governmental organizations, transnational organizations, and the pharmaceutical industry, together with media and financial corporations, have cooperated via public-private partnerships, such as the Trusted News Initiative, to deploy a massive, globally harmonized psychological and propaganda operation, the largest in the history of the Western world. With this campaign, the governments of many Western nation states have turned military-grade psyops, strategies, tactics, technologies, and capabilities developed for modern military combat against their own citizens. This is well documented and was predicted in a series of classic texts um, and also discussed at length in my latest book, Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. It's also these, these methods COVID-19, the Great Reset, and the Great Narrative, Klaus Schwab being the leader of the World Economic Forum. Uh, before fifth, fourth and fifth generation warfare, modern warfare was a duel on a larger scale or a continuation of politics by other means, with core elements of rationality of the state, probability and military command, and rage of the population, according to Clausewitz in his classic text on war. Today, in the context of fifth-generation warfare, there is no clear distinction between state, non-state, combatants, and civilians. And there is absolutely no um, boundaries in terms of ethics or rules of engagement. It is total unrestricted warfare. 
Um, it is clear that Western nations, as I mentioned, particularly the Five Eyes nations, have deployed this military-grade PSYOPs technology on their civilians. In many cases, through the operations of uh, military operational groups that are, are trained in PSYOPs. Uh, this includes, for instance, the 77th Brigade in the United Kingdom. That's now public information. Many of this has come out through Freedom of Information and uh, acts and Twitter file disclosures. Um, and uh, it has really been a central feature of governmental um, efforts to uh, manipulate populations and uh, coerce them to accepting uh, the uh, uh, whatever the narrative is promoted by the government and the World Health Organization. Uh, just to put a, a pin on it, um, the uh, U.S. government, through Department of Homeland Security, has defined terms which are equated with domestic terrorism that relate to this, and those are uh, misinformation. That means any information being spread in public which is different from the approved narrative from the regional health authority. So I guess that would be your NHS and the World Health Organization, or in the U.S., that would be our Health and Human Services. Any information which is different from that approved by those agencies is defined as misinformation. If it's spread uh, benignly uh, through ignorance or whatever, that's misinformation. If it's spread for a uh, political intent, that is defined as disinformation. If it's information being shared which is true but causes uh, concerns about government and government integrity, that is called malinformation. All three of those classifications in the United States are defined as domestic terrorism by the Department of Homeland Security. In general, thinking about these uh, concepts of uh, generations of warfare as discrete entities is really misleading. They're more like generations or gradients. Um, first generation being, you know, sticks and stones and uh, swords and mounted combat with lance, lances. A uh, second generation you can think of as the uh, First World War being a great example and the American Civil War. Third generation uh, employed the Blitzkrieg, uh, which allowed the decentralization of command authority uh, to the German army, which allowed them with even inferior technology to bypass, for instance, the Maginot Line in France. So third generation is mechanized warfare focused on speed and maneuverability. You can think of the Ukraine conflict as an example of uh, third generation warfare in, in progress. Fourth generation warfare was designed uh, for asymmetric warfare against large state actors. Um, we can think of this as terrorism, uh, or we can think of it as uh, insurgency efforts, such as, for instance, uh, the American um, uh, Revolution against Great Britain is an example. But in the modern context, fourth generation warfare deploys both propaganda and battles over territory, including use of kinetic weapons by the likes of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, uh, various actors in Syria, uh, um, and going back to uh, the Viet Cong. Uh, I argue that the United States military has been uh, has never won a fourth generation conflict. In order to try to overcome that uh, problem of uh, 
um, the advantages posed by internet and network effects and these insurgency strategies that are highly decentralized in terms of leadership, creating a situation where uh, state actors face kind of a whack-a-mole problem. They've developed a fifth generation warfare, which is based on information and perception uh, manipulation. It does not typically involve non-kinetic weapons. And uh, it is not a battleground over territory, but rather a battleground over your mind and its perceptions and its, its availability of information. Um, so these new tactics have created a totally new battlescape here, um, uh, one that is very Salvador Dali-esque, in which it's very difficult to understand the nature of the conflict, who the combatants are, and uh, typically the combatants uh, that are propagating new disinformation warfare into a population seek to become as obscure as possible and act with as little uh, um, energy as possible. This is a very subtle manipulation of information. It is basically the uh, modern uh, epitome of uh, psychological operations and uh, um, uh, uh, the use of psychology to influence behavior of, of groups and populations. Um, it's, as I say, it's very, very difficult to really come to grips with fifth generation warfare as you begin to understand it, um, and in particular because there are absolutely no boundaries in terms of truth, ethics, of manipulation of media, integrity of information, social organizations, etc. It is complete and total information warfare with absolutely no boundaries. This is what's been deployed against your population there in Canada. Um, this type of warfare targets the cognitive biases of individuals and organizations in a very strategic fashion. So we're all familiar with trolls and bots, etc. But it's very diff it's very different. It's it's concealed. Uh, it's it's impossible to attribute, um, and it uh, focuses on the individual rather than on groups. Uh, in many cases, it is truly a war of how you think. I argue that in the context of fifth generation warfare, when it is being deployed by governments against their own populations. The concept of sovereignty is irrelevant. It is obsolete. It's an anachronism. There is no sovereignty in an environment in which everything which you obtain in your information space, all of your emotions, everything is manipulated towards the end of whatever the goals are of the nation state. That is modern fifth generation warfare, information warfare, and that is what's been done. In Canada, it's well documented. So these are key characteristics of fifth generation warfare. Um, I mentioned Arab Spring. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict was another example. The Havana syndrome, where we had diplomats in the United States in, in Havana, Cuba, that experienced an unknown uh, mental uh, compromise or psychological state uh, after deployment of some sort of unknown energy weapon is a clear, explicit example of fifth generation warfare. It was targeted, it was effective, 
and there is no um, knowledge of what caused that effect or who was deploying it on the American diplomats. Perfect example of fifth generation warfare. I mentioned the concept of, of sovereignty. Uh, what is world health when public health policy and pharmaceutical interventions are transformed into just another fifth generation warfare weapon? How can a democratic system of government continue to exist if the existing uh, leadership of a nation state deploys, feels that it's acceptable to deploy these types of technologies on their own population? As I said, the idea of sovereignty becomes uh, irrelevant. These are examples in the lay press uh, from Canada and the UK documenting the uh, deployment of military campaigns involving fifth generation psychological warfare and information warfare against the Canadian population. When you say conducting propaganda during the pandemic, this is fifth generation warfare. This is what was deployed on you by your own military. This is from the Canadian Joint Operations Command, et cetera. As you notice in this uh, article um, by David Pugano uh, in one of your uh, uh, lay press publications, um, this plan devised by the Canadian Joint Operations Command relied on propaganda techniques similar to those employed during the Afghanistan war. In other words, that's a euphemism. They deployed the fifth generation warfare technology uh, designed to combat the Taliban against you, the civilians of the Canadian of Canada. Now, this is an example of one of the battle groups in the United States, uh, the fourth psychological operations group uh, based in Fort Bragg. This is a recruitment video, just to give you a sense of the nature of this technology. This is the group that was developed from the ghost army of World War II that uh, was used to uh, fake the German army about the uh, um, landing um, at the end of the war. demonstration in China comes to a violent and bloody end. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Wolves hiding nearby Whispering do or die Around me Another very important phase of warfare.
It has as its target not the body, but the mind of the enemy. The target of psychological warfare is against the enemy's mind. It is words and ideas. The ammunition used by Cywar. Its mission is to influence the thoughts of the enemy soldiers. And at the same time, is expected and encouraged to study foreign languages and the social sciences such as history, economics, and sociology. He must have a broad and sympathetic understanding of all phases of human experience. Gripping at my skin, the walls of night close in. Oh, but the use of this force as an integral part of combat has now taken on new form. I hope that convinces you that this is a real uh, process, threat, and technology. It, As I mentioned, it's deployed in the United States, in Great Britain, through the 77th Brigade. One of the members of the 77th Brigade is actually a member of Parliament. Um, and obviously in Canada, as documented by your own press, and New Zealand and Australia, all part of the Five Eyes Alliance. There are a series of core technologies that are used. Um, one of them is the OODA loop, which is also a core strategy, for instance, in fighter pilots uh, currently, in which there are very rapid response cycles uh, to new information. Um, another key technology and concept is the Milgram experiment, in which uh, people were subjected to shock uh, um, surreptitiously, not actually. Uh, and it demonstrated the willingness of individuals to uh, deploy um, uh, potentially life-threatening shocks if authority figures told them to. Another example is the ASH experiment, in which it was demonstrated the, that the effects of social pressure can cause a, a person to conform to uh, the willingness of, or the interests of uh, authority figures or organizations. Um, people are willing to ignore reality in order to conform to a group. This also relates to the work of Hannah Arndt, Eust Malors, and most recently Matthias Desmet uh, involving mass psychosis or mass formation or mass hypnosis are all three equivalent words. Another example is the Operation Lockstep, the idea of using a pandemic to impose tighter top-down control modeled after the Chinese social credit system, which has been foretold and evaluated in, an, in a variety of uh, um, uh, planning documents and analysis documents by the Rockefeller Foundation and the U.S. intelligence community. 
I've mentioned Five Eyes Alliance uh, multiple times here. I don't think I need to cover it again. You're aware that Canada is part of the uh, most powerful and longest standing intelligence organization in the history of the West. Uh, you may not understand that, for instance, Wikipedia is very actively edited by individuals who are tightly associated with MI5. The What we have is reciprocal relationships between the Five Eyes Alliance countries in which, for instance, things that are prohibited from being performed by the Canadian Intelligence Service or the American Intelligence Service are performed as tasks by, say, Australian or United Kingdom intelligence services, which are not prohibited from uh, taking those types of actions against civilian populations in other Five Eyes Alliance member states. Another key concept is the Overton window, which is the range of political of policies which are politically acceptable for discussion, known as the window of discourse. And fifth generation warfare methods seek to actively manipulate the Overton window for strategic and tactical advantage. So, for instance, when you experience the uh, uh, fact checkers, quote unquote, or the uh, censorship, uh, um, shadow banning, et cetera, on um, social media, because you are communicating something like the slide deck from the Canadian COVID Care Alliance that technically accurately discussed the nature of the Pfizer clinical trials, that is a clear example of uh, third party actors constraining the Overton window, making it so that these things are not socially acceptable to be discussed. This is a key strategy and tactic in fifth generation warfare. Another one is the exploitation of cognitive biases associated and described as the Dunning-Kruger effect, the relationship between act, average performance and average social, actual performance on a college. So self-perceived performance, in other words, the difference between what people think they are able to perform and their intelligence levels and their true capabilities. People have a strong tendency to always overestimate their ability to assess information and their own intelligence. And this is actively exploited using fifth generation warfare technology. Another example is bad jacketing or snitch jacketing. This is this common strategy that we're seeing deployed and has been deployed for decades, for instance, by the FBI to create suspicion and division within organizations that are resistance group. Um, and what's done is to seed the idea that members of the group are, are um, bad actors, that they uh, in some way are uh, actually um, acting on behalf of a third party, typically the state or the intelligence community, um, and so this is uh, often uh, referred to as uh, um, controlled opposition. That's the that's the typical strategy that's that's uh, propagated into a population is uh, somebody who is uh, um, being very effective as a leader within a protest group or organization. Then uh, rumors being spread about them that they are actually acting on behalf of the opponents, the state or whomever. And this is a, another video prepared by Mickey Willis that describes uh, bad jacketing. It's called Our Birthright, and it's another example of the fifth generation warfare technologies that have been actively deployed, uh, including in Canada during the trucker uh, strike event. I've been a human rights activist for almost 20 years. 
As a documentary filmmaker, I've been on the front lines of many of our nation's biggest scandals and protests. From that perspective, I've been an eyewitness to the rise and fall of numerous people-powered movements. Nearly every organized resistance I've been a part of has ended just inches from victory for the same critical mistake, infighting, when members of the same group turn against each other. It often begins with whispers about the most prominent spokespeople of the cause. These rumors typically sound like, I hear John is controlled opposition, or some people are saying Jane is compromised. While the use of infiltrators and agitators is a very real thing, I've yet to experience one scenario where such a label was accurately applied. And suspiciously, these labels are always branded on the people who are making the most progress. With the degradation of their reputation goes their contribution to your life. Prior to social media, people actually sat down to dialogue through their differences. Today, without solid evidence or sufficient inquiry, we go directly to our keyboards to vent our suspicions. Even after the rumor is proven false or simply fades away, some level of doubt and division always remains. This is all by design. Part of what allowed so many people to walk away from Assange was some of the Me Too allegations mm -hmm. that had surfaced and that were ultimately discredited, stuck in people's minds. The voices of propaganda are masterful at this game. They knowingly run a false story, then retract it, knowing the lie will reach millions, but very few will see the correction. Amy Coney Barrett's religious faith is being called into question again. She belongs to this People of Praise a group, which the Southern Poverty Law Center has labeled them a hate group. When I stated that People of Praise had been deemed a hate group, I just got them mixed up with another group. I conflated them. Ah, okay. That happens, you know, it's easy to do. In the words of former CIA director William Casey, we'll know that our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. The planting of divisive rumors is one of the most common tactics used in psychological warfare. As the lies bloom, like worker bees, well-intended citizens pollinate the masses with poisonous disinformation. What the gossiping bees fail to realize is that they themselves are doing the work of controlled opposition. They are literally, unwittingly, working on behalf of the very forces they believe they are resisting. Again, all of this is by design. While we've all been distracted by the latest trends and tragedies, everything that has influence on our behavior has been infiltrated by an agenda to control our thoughts. Whether their goal is to make us purchase a product, vote for a political party, or submit there are forces at work who understand the functionalities of your mind far better than you do. Their goal is total control. But because they are the few and we are the many, they can only achieve total control through the age-old tactic of divide and conquer. You're either with them or with us. Never before have we been so divided. Divided by politics, religion, nation, state, race, class, gender, and now, vaccine status. To better understand how we got here, Consider these three quotes from The Art of War by Sun Tzu. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Victorious warriors win first and then go to war. The secret lies in confusing the enemy so that he cannot fathom our real intent. Though Sun Tzu lived over 2,500 years ago, his work remains at the heart of RCIA as well as the Chinese Communist Party's strategy today. It's no coincidence that around the same era as Sun Tzu, the words, united we stand, divided we fall, were first recorded. It is unity that will save our communities.
But as you see in the audience, Muslims, Christians, Jewish community, Democrats, Republicans, white, black, everyone all in between, this is the example of what you get when you choose to attack all members of the human family. Our greatest power is our numbers, hence the relentless effort to shatter us into broken fragments. As their agendas are being exposed, the dividers will stop at nothing to cover their crimes against humanity. They have bunkers. All we have is each other. The good news is, that's all we need. Though we are intrinsically interconnected, our minds are being wired to obsess on our differences. Contrary to social indoctrination, we do not have to be ideologically aligned to stand together. We don't even have to like each other. There is only one thing that we must agree on, that freedom is our birthright. Now is the time to let go of whatever it is you're holding on to that keeps you divided from your friends, family, and fellow humans. Rise above all the micro dramas and distractions to see that a much bigger story is unfolding. Swallow your pride, humble yourself, let it go. I'm not suggesting that we look the other way when someone is clearly thwarting our forward momentum. There are people who deserve to be called out by name, especially those who are undermining our trust in each other. But even then, we should remember that there is a human life being affected by our words. We've been so conditioned to believe we are powerless that we've become careless with our power, like toddlers with loaded guns. How many times do we need to shoot our own foot till we realize that the power is in our hands? The only thing that can stop us at this point is us. We've all been lied to, scammed, fooled, tricked, conned, and coerced. Yes, it sucks. But here we are, wiser and stronger than we were just three years ago. This is the moment for us to activate our innate ability to create solutions. That can only happen through the awareness of symbiosis, defined as a mutually beneficial relationship between different groups. All of life depends on relationships. Every living thing is in communication. From the stars, to the planets, the earth, the plants, the elements, the insects, the animals, the humans, and every cell within us. Real change out there begins with real change inside. The question is, how bad does it have to get before we're willing to change? So, uh, sorry about that you didn't uh, get adequate volume. I uh, hope you could understand most of that. The point is that these are the technologies that have been deployed and continue to be deployed against us. There are third parties that have been clearly identified as uh, disruptors who were involved in disruption of the Canadian trucker protests, um, as well as the American trucker protests. We do have infiltrators. They are using these technologies they appear to be state actors um, that are working as subcontractors. How can we defend ourselves against this? Um, we can basically learn the technologies, and when we do so, we become resistant to them, just like we're more resistant to modern marketing technology, which is very closely related. And as we master the technologies and understand them more deeply, we can begin to deploy them ourselves rather than just being victims. There are many offensive ways to uh, use this, and there are many different offensive ways that they're used against us through chaos agents, 
generation of fake uh, sock puppets, bot trolls, flash mobs, etc. And of course, the aggressive deployment of censorship, gaslighting, and, and uh, other technologies which are used particularly on social media and in uh, uh, corporate media, um, often with uh, sponsorship from uh, uh, governments, including your own government, as I've mentioned. So I conclude this talk then about fifth generation warfare with the suggestion there that you seek out the variety of different sources of literature that provide more information about this. And of course, we've written about it extensively in our book, The Lies My Government Told Me, as well as in our Substack, rwmalonemd.substack.com, if you wish to understand more about fifth generation warfare, nudge technology, and the associated psyops that are deployed in Twitter and other social media platforms. With that, I thank you for your time. Uh, and uh, let's see, I need to stop sharing. Yes, if you can return to view of you, I think our commissioners yeah. likely have a few questions for you. Trying, trying to get there. <laughs> there we go, we can okay, see you. So we should be back. And thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Malone, for your fantastic testimony. When I understand it, we, we, you did a journey from the science and the technology and how the science and the technology is being deployed for all kinds of applications, some of which we can actually question, as you mentioned in the end. So if I can come back to science and technology, because I'm a scientist. I was working in gene therapy in the early 90s, and I've, yes. I've been following your work. Um, if we can come back to, if we can explain to what extent the science, for example, of the mRNA technology has not been developed to the level that would justify its use in, I would say at this point, all kinds of application, including the COVID vaccine, but now they want to move it in many other type of application. It is my understanding, based on the latest result that has been published on the quality or lack thereof of the product produced at large scale under so-called GMP, which we can question the quality. Uh, do you think, based on your ex expertise on the technology, that this product can actually be produced anytime soon under large-scale and GMP quality, irrespective of what kind of vaccine you might be proposing? Okay, so your question is basically, to use regulatory terminology, you're speaking about adulteration, uh, potency, purity, and identity of the uh, medical product, the biological medical product, which has been marketed to us as a vaccine. Do I understand you correctly? Yeah, exactly. My question is, in your expert opinion, are we ready to produce these products under compliant GMP? And if not, are we? what would it take to get there? So uh, we have been told that the uh, products are compliant with GMP, but ha it has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material and its composition, uh, the manufacturing process, and I'm not aware of what the release criteria are. 
I do know that there have been multiple independent assessments and I'll, let's park that for a minute. Uh, I want to come back to that. There have been multiple independent assessments that document, for instance, uh, quite a significant concentration of contaminating plasma DNA in these uh, preparations, which suggests that the uh, purification process to remove the plasma DNA template for the manufacturing of the mRNA has been uh, the most gently, gentle way I could put it would be inadequate. Uh, contamination of DNA in vaccines has long been a problem, no matter what the source, for instance, live attenuated or uh, purified subunit uh, influenza vaccines also have problems with contaminating DNA from cell lines or from egg embryo, from chick embryos, for example. So there is absolutely, uh, based on the independent assessments. There's significant contamination of plasma DNA, and it's been reported that that DNA in the case of the bivalent products includes a full-length plasma that includes uh, uh, simian virus 40 sequences, mm -hmm. including promoter enhancers, and I'm not clear about replication origins. Uh, in addition, it's very clear from the analyses that the mRNA transcripts present in these preparations of uh, gene therapy products used for vaccination are often truncated. It's, it's basically impossible with T7 RNA polymerase to prevent the uh, premature termination of the growing chain of mRNA. So one ends up with a uh, composition of matter that has uh, um, significant contamination with uh, um, sub-full-length uh, uh, transcripts, uh, which may have their own biologic properties, and the proteins that they encode may have their own biologic properties. In terms of the overall formulations, clearly this technology uh, de developed at the University of British Columbia in large part. Um, uh, is, is not as advertised. It does not remain at the site of injection. It does not remain in the draining lymph nodes. It is not targeted. In fact, it is uh, generally distributed throughout the body and seems to have some uh, particular affinity as a formulation of the product uh, for a variety of tissues and organs that uh, are associated with significant uh, pathology. And this includes brain, heart, and most uh, worrisome reproductive tissues, including ovaries. We have uh, the inadvertent uh, um, disclosure by a, a Pfizer uh, global director recently uh, with Project Veritas that Pfizer believes, for instance, that the uh, reproductive complications associated with the vaccines, ergo the dysmenorrhea and menometrorrhagia, uh, that women uh, commonly experience uh, is actually due to damage to the, in their words, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gonadal axis. That's another way of saying damage to the endocrine system. Uh, and this is apparently a leading hypothesis at Pfizer for these uh, female reproductive consequences. And of course, uh, women are not the only ones that have an endocrine system. Uh, and this is not restricted just to adult females, particularly worrisome 
is the prospects that these materials may be damaging the uh, endocrine system of developing children, in my opinion. Uh, um, we also have the uh, toxicity, which is unresolved and never assessed to date, of the uh, pseudo-mRNA itself. The composition of matter of this material that is being synthesized chemically through a, a basically an enzymatic reaction uh, in, substitutes the normal uridine for pseudouridine. Pseudouridine is a molecule present at very precise places in natural mRNA, but it is not typically incorporated into all of the uridine-coated uh, um, uh, components of the uh, mRNA molecule or, or messenger ribonucleic acid molecule. Um, pseudouridine is uh, typically very, very selectively modified in cells in our bodies rather than being incorporated wholesale throughout the RNA. This is the invention of Carrico and Weissman that's used in all of the uh, marketed or distributed mRNA-based vaccine products. Uh, and it, the reason why the pseudouridine was incorporated was because of the problem that I mentioned previously. These formulations are highly inflammatory. Mm. And the incorporation of pseudouridine into mRNA acts through uh, various cellular uh, signaling pathways to downregulate inflammation and immune response. Unfortunately, that has two aspects. Downregulating the inflammatory and immune response is good in the sense of reducing the effects uh, of the formulation itself on inflammation, but bad in that it's nonspecific. So we do know that for whatever reason, these products, when administered, these uh, um, uh, biological medical products uh, marketed as vaccines, um, are eliciting damage to immune responses. And we can, we can observe that because one of the common adverse events is the reactivation of latent DNA viruses, such as Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, and shingles, of course, uh, which are common adverse events associated with the uh, post-vaccination syndrome. So in short, what we have is clear evidence of unresolved and inadequately characterized toxicity associated with the um, uh, delivery formulation with the mRNA itself and with the encoded payload spike. None of these were characterized in the way that is normally prescribed in uh, well-established regulatory processes in terms of characterizing the potential toxicity of all components of a final drug product. And the presence of these contaminants of DNA and sub uh, transcript mRNAs are clear evidence of adulteration in the final product. Unfortunately, uh, the contract clauses of Pfizer and Moderna have been such that there has been, in general, globally, a restriction on the ability of national health authorities to perform lot release testing and characterize these contaminants. And so uh, governments throughout the world and their regulatory authorities have basically uh, caved to pressure from the pharmaceutical industry to bypass their normal processes in ensuring uh, purity, potency, um, uh, and lack of, of uh, um, contamination 
uh, in in the products that have been administered often through uh, mandates or other forms of coercion or compulsion, they they have bypassed uh, their own norms, and so we're not able to really verify in a rigorous way, in a way that would normally be performed, whether or not these products are adulterated, but the current evidence suggests that they are significantly alter, uh, adulterated, and the data are clear that they are neither safe nor effective. Over. And Dr. Maloney, thank you. And does the commissioners have any other questions of Dr. Malone? Yes, there's, so there's another question. And Dr. Malone, we are very tight on time, so I'll ask if you can be very succinct in answering the questions. Uh, thank you, Dr. Malone. Um, we've had a number of witnesses talk about uh, COVID-19 and how they recognized at a very early point in the pandemic that the disease targeted, or perhaps that's not the right term, but certain people, certain stratification of the population were more susceptible. In other words, if you were obese, or if you were elderly, they told us that uh, you are more susceptible to the disease. My question is really focused at the second part of your, of your presentation, and that is when you talk about these fifth generation techniques, are they stratified in the population? In other words, have you seen markers that show that it's more younger people or older people, higher population density portions of the country are more susceptible to this technique than others. Okay, I cannot, I'm not a, I'm not a, my, this is not my core competence, uh, psychology. This is not what I was trained in or psychoanalysis. Uh, others have had that training. I can tell you definitively that there was a study, a randomized clinical trial with a six-month follow-up of approximately 600 subjects in 10 different groups performed by Yale University. Uh, the funding for that was not disclosed before the vaccines were ever available that piloted uh, various messaging strategies and tested whether they were effective at different populations in terms of uh, the messaging regarding uh, um, uh, uh, generating a willingness to accept these vaccine products and to influence other parties to accept these vaccine products. I've documented that both in Substack, it's a published peer-reviewed paper, and in my book. So there absolutely is evidence that these uh, um, campaign tactics of, for instance, uh, speaking about um, guilt, social obligations, risks to the elderly and grandparents, etc., were absolutely tested in a randomized clinical trial prospectively in order to generate the message content that was deployed uh, throughout the Western world to uh, convince, compel, and entice uh, different populations to accept these products and in particular, the logic that it was necessary to vaccinate children in order to protect the elders. Over. Thank you, Dr. Malone. I have nothing else. Anyone else? Dr. Malone, it's truly been an honor to have uh, you join us today. And on behalf of the uh, National Citizens Inquiry, we thank you so very much for attending and sharing with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope it was helpful, and I wish you the best of luck there in Canada. Thank you.
Ms. Purdy, I'll ask you if you can state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name. Spelled P-R-U-C-E. Party is spelled P-A-R-D-Y. And Bruce, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Now, you had sent me earlier a copy of your CV, which we've kind of pre-entered as Exhibit T0-6. Is it? Would you confirm that the CV you sent me was correct and accurate? It, it is correct, thanks. Now, you are a professor of law at Queen's University? Correct. And you are the executive director of Rights Probe, and that's a, a, a law and governance think tank and division of the Energy Probe Research Foundation? That's right. And then you're also uh, currently a member of the Ontario Bar? Correct. Now, <clears throat> you've, let, you've asked uh, me to let the commissioners know, and, and this would be a lawyer thing, is that you are not opposed to questions being asked during your presentation because you're going to cover different subjects. And uh, the commissioners might not be aware, judges interrupt lawyers all the time in court, so it's kind of the, the common thing. Now, <clears throat> you've been called to explain how the legal system enabled governments and public health authorities to put COVID measures in place. And would you please uh, share with us your thoughts on that? Yes, by all means. Thank you very much for, for having me. Is there a, uh, a trick to starting the PowerPoint? Do I just click on it? Okay, very good. You have it. Great, great, great. Okay. So I want to start with this thought, which is that the most powerful ideas are the ones you don't know you have. And one of those ideas is the problem here. I want to try to answer this question for us today. During COVID, of course, people were told what to do and what not to do. They were told not to walk through the park. They were told to close their businesses. They were told their kids couldn't go to school. They were told that they couldn't go into the store without a mask. They were told they couldn't have a job without a vaccine, and so on. And during this period, people thought the law would save them. This seemed like society unraveling. It seemed insane. And they thought, the law will save us. The law is solid. The law is written down. The law will bring this back. And it did not. Many people tried. They found a lawyer. They brought an action. They brought a challenge to this rule or that. And those challenges, for the most part, were rejected. And the question is why? And I'd like, there may be many answers to this question, but I would like to suggest two. The first one is that this is a reflection of the triumph of the administrative state. That system of governance is based upon an idea, and that's the idea that I want to talk to you about. This is the important idea that we don't know that we have. And the second reason is that 
the charter that a lot of people put a lot of faith in uh, did nothing to push back against this idea. And in fact, in some ways, because of the way it is interpreted and applied now, the charter, instead of opposing that premise, that idea, in some ways now facilitates it. So, the premise, this idea that is the problem. Let's start with this. Our law is based upon ideas. Now, it might seem that the law consists of, of books, of words. You go off the, to the shelf or onto the internet, and you open it up, and you see what the words say. And that's the law. And that's, that's true, of course, to an extent. But the legal system is also based upon a certain number of ideas. Here's one of the ideas, that the state is based upon three different branches. Legislature, the administration, or the executive branch, as it's sometimes called, and the courts. And one of the important ideas that we have had in our law for a long time is that these three branches of the state do different and distinct jobs. And one of the ways that we are protected from our state, from our own state, is that these three branches are distinct and they cannot do the job of the other. In other words, it prevents power from being concentrated in any one organ or person. Legislatures legislate. They pass statutes that contain the rules. Courts take those rules and they apply them to particular cases. And the administration takes the rules that the legislature has passed and they enforce them, they enact them, they don't enact them, sorry, they, they, they carry them out. Now, one way to understand which part of the state we're dealing with at any particular moment is to think about it this way. We know what a court is, and we know what a legislature is. A court has a judge, in a room, and it involves a dispute and evidence and so on. And a legislature has elected people, and they pass statutes by vote. Everything else, everything else is a part of the administration. The cabinet, the ministries, the departments, the agencies, the tribunals, the commissions, the law enforcement, and so on and so forth. Now, here's a basic idea. The administrative or executive part of the state is authorized to do nothing unless the legislature has passed a statute saying that it can. And that's a great rule. And that's a rule that the courts did enforce and still technically do enforce. But here's the problem. The ideas upon which our legal system are based are changing. They're evolving, if you like, but they're evolving in what I would consider to be a very dangerous way. Here is now what is happening, and it's been happening for quite a while. This is not just a COVID thing, but it, it reached its height during COVID. Here's what's happening. Legislatures 
instead of passing statutes that contain all the rules, are now passing statutes that delegate rule-making authority to the administration. It doesn't mean, I'm not suggesting that there aren't statutes with rules in them. That wouldn't be correct at all. But more and more, our statutes include sections that say, and cabinet can make regulations about these things. Or the minister can decide this list of things. Or this public health official can do these things. Or this commission can do that. And the actual rules, the actual rules that apply to us day to day, more and more, are not in the statute. They are in the rules made by the administration. Now you'd think, well, hold on, wait a minute. Surely the courts would prevent this from happening because now you're concentrating power. Now the executive branch is doing the job of the legislature. But the courts have long said, no, no, it's okay. Legislatures can delegate their rulemaking authority to the administration. And when they do so, and when the administration makes these rules and does its stuff, what courts should do is to defer. We should give room to the administration, to the officials, to the public health officers, and so on, to do their thing. We shouldn't look too closely at it, because after all, they are the ones with expertise, and we in the court are not. So here is what we get. You get delegation from the legislative branch, and you get deference from the courts, and what you end up with is an administration that has the following mandate. It has the discretion to decide the public good. And that is the idea that has triumphed. And that is the idea that triumphed during COVID on steroids. If you like, this is the holy trinity of the administrative state. Delegation, deference, and discretion. The discretion to decide the public good is the premise of the administrative state. And here's the implication. When we talk about data, when we talk about medicine, when we talk about whether masking works, talk about whether the vaccines are safe and effective, we are arguing about what is in the public good. That does not challenge the premise of the system that is in place. Here's what this premise means in a little bit longer detail. That individual autonomy must yield to the expertise and authority of officials acting in the name of public welfare and progressive causes. So here's just what I mean, just very briefly, here's what I mean by a premise. This is just a very short thing about deductive reasoning, right? You start with a proposition. 
Cats have tails. That's a premise. You plug in a bit of evidence. Sometimes it's called a minor, pre uh, minor premise, but an evidence, piece of evidence. You're trying to connect two things. The premise with a, a, a piece of information, and you get a conclusion. Simple enough. Here's the way the premise in this situation works. Here's the premise. Officials have discretion to decide the public good. Here's the evidence. Officials mandated a vaccine. Now note the nature of this evidence. This evidence is not about the vaccine. It's not about its safety. It's not about its efficacy. It's not about whether it's in the public good. It's the evidence about what the officials with the authority did. And if you put that premise together with that fact, what you get is the conclusion. The conclusion is, therefore, vaccine mandates are in the public good. That's what follows from the premise. And you cannot attack that conclusion without attacking the premise. And attacking that premise, for the most part, has not been done. Why is that? Because the premise is very deep. We have lived with an administrative state for decades. People think that's what government is. If you went up to people on the street and you said, we shouldn't have officials with the, with the ability to decide the public good. They would look at you like you were from a different place. Like, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you mean. That's what government does. And I'm here to tell you that is not necessarily what government does. It is what it does now, but it is not the only way to design your government. And the fact that we have designed our government in this way has led to this problem. And there is no way to avoid the problem again the next time unless the premise is challenged. So here's what I mean about the, um, all of the issues that so many people have been talking about. The masking. The lockdowns. Do lockdowns work? Did they work? Did they stop the spread? Did they cause more harm than good? Did social distancing have a rationale? Was six feet right? Or should it have been five or seven? Was there any data? Was it ridiculous or not? Do masks work? What's the, what's the data? What's the, what are the studies on masks? Is it ridiculous as it looks to be? Or is there something to it? What about the vaccines? Were they tested properly? Do they cause these problems? Do they actually stop the spread? Do they actually stop the severity of symptoms? All of these questions. Now, they're very important questions, to be sure. Very valuable to know about what the actual information is on all of these questions. But all of these questions are trying to debate what is in the public good. And to concentrate on that is to miss the problem. The problem is not the last part of that statement. The problem is the first part. You must 
challenge the premise that our government officials have the expertise and authority to tell us what to do in the public good. Because that is the idea that is now running the show. In other words, it would be a mistake to think of this COVID debacle as a matter of a collection of bad policies. Now, they were, in my opinion, for sure. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that the officials inside the state were able to produce a set of bad policies. If government officials have unchallenged authority to decide the public good and thereby to override individual autonomy, bad things inevitably follow. What they can do, they will do. And, and in a sense, the, what happened during COVID was the culmination of this trend, if you like, this evolution of the nature of the administrative state. If you like, it was the pinnacle achievement of this managerial state apparatus. The, it was a great opportunity for people who have authority to manage society because that's what they think they're for. Now, as I say, COVID was not the first time. These things have been in development for decades, decades. Over a long period of time, these things have, have, have come forward. But COVID may have been the most extreme example, certainly in living memory. So that's part one. That is the problem about the premise. That is the idea that's leading the charge, the idea that must be challenged. And part two is, well, what happened to the charter? I thought the charter was there to protect my individual rights. It looks like it should. It's a roster of what appears to be individual freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, the right to equality, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. What happened? Well, the way our charter reads combined with the way over a long period of time the courts have interpreted those words means that the charter does not now prevent the administrative state from overriding individual autonomy in the name of public good. Now, occasionally it will. In the law, of course, you can't make blanket statements about things because cases go this way and that. But if you look at the trend over time, the Charter now is as much a legitimizer of the administrative state as it is an opposer of it. And note this, this administrative state I keep referring to, this managerial governance mechanism or collection of agencies and departments and people who manage society is explicitly provided for in the Constitution nowhere. Our Constitution does not say we shall have an administrative state. It doesn't prohibit it, 
It doesn't prevent it, but it doesn't prescribe it either. It is just grown up over time. So, the Charter is not the foundation. Unlike what many people think, and understandably so, the Charter is not the foundation of our legal system. Instead, it is merely a gloss, if you like, on what the legislature and the executive branch can do. Now, it used to be, and some would argue still is, and that's a fair argument, it used to be that the foundation of our legal system was both the common law, that is, law developed on certain subjects by the courts over a long period of time, from case to case to case to case, the law of contract, the law of torts and negligence, the law of property are still largely common law subjects. In other words, you can't find the whole law by looking in the statutes. And the other foundation is this separation of powers idea that I referred to at the beginning. The legislature does this, the administration does that, and the courts do this. And they should all be separate to protect us all from their domination. Today, though, for the most part, I would contend that even though those ideas are still around, they have been put aside in terms of their hierarchy in favor of this primary idea that I mentioned to you earlier, which is this holy trinity of the administrative state, delegation, deference, and discretion. So, what about the Charter? Well, two things I want to say about the Charter. Number one, these COVID rules and the people who put them in place got around the Charter by going around to the back door. And B, I want to talk about the courts a little bit, but let's do the first one first. Go around the back door. What I mean is that some things are able to be done indirectly that are not able to be done directly. Here's an example. Let's say that a province had put in place a mandatory vaccine policy. I mean, I mean actually mandatory. I don't mean a passport. I don't mean at your workplace. I don't mean for a school. I mean actually mandatory in this sense. If you do not get a vaccine, the rule says, we will fine you or put you in prison. Okay, well, now that is an actual mandatory vaccine. And we have Section 7 in the Charter. Section 7 says, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Security of the person will include the notion of bodily autonomy. It's where in the Charter you will find the idea that you have the right not to give consent before medical treatment. A medical practitioner and the state need to get your voluntary informed consent before they can apply treatment. Okay. If we had a mandatory vaccine, an actual mandatory vaccine, that, you'd like to think, I would think, would violate Section 7. That would be unconstitutional. But that's not what we had. We had something 
much more clever. We had a collection of policies put forward by, enacted by, directed by, promoted by the agencies of the administrative state that said, listen, you can do what you want. You don't have to get a vaccine. But by the way, if you don't get one, you might not be able to have a job. You won't be able to fly on a plane or a train. You maybe can't go to a restaurant. Uh, maybe your kids can't go to school, but it's still your choice. We're not requiring you to get one. We're not coercing you, and they're right. In the strict legal sense, that is not unlawful coercion. Why? Because they're not making you with the force of the state with fines or imprisonment. It doesn't fit within the idea of unlawful coercion. So the argument that they were making about this does fly. It fits within the gaps in the Charter. So those people who thought, well, we have security of the person in Section 7, I'm, they can't make me take a vaccine, and, and, and those people are right. They can't make you take a vaccine, but they can set up consequences if you don't, and thereby avoid the Charter protection. Compulsory vaccines are likely a violation of Section 7, but vaccine passports probably are not, and that's what the courts have said. And this is just one example of going around the back door, of doing indirectly what cannot be done directly. Let me give you a concrete example of how this works outside the COVID situation. And this is going to sound banal, but it's abstractly similar, so you can see it. Let's say a province creates a rule that applies to all retail establishments, stores and restaurants and so on, that says you cannot go into the establishment, a public commercial establishment, without shirt and shoes. Well, some people might say, well, hold on, wait a minute, I have rights. I have, I have charter rights. I'm being made to wear something that's a violation of my person. I, I, my, my clothing or lack thereof is an expression that violates my freedom of expression. And so on and so forth. You can see the argument that for someone who doesn't want to wear a shirt, this is actually a violation of their choice. But, of course, this is not going to work because there are rationales for the rule. The rationales are public decency, public health. We don't want you walking around in a restaurant without a shirt on. It's just nothing look good and might be unhealthy. There's going to be a social consensus and a legal rationale for having the rule, and therefore, you're not going to be able to reject it. The answer is going to be, look, you don't have to go to the restaurant if you don't want to wear a shirt. And that's exactly the kind of argument you heard with the vaccine passports. You don't have to have one. Just don't go. Now, the fact that you can't basically do anything without the vaccine is not our problem. Because it's a series of choices. And the Charter does not entitle you to be free of consequences, is the way that they would put it. So here are the other kinds of of rights in the Charter 
that have been tried as arguments against various COVID rules, freedom of assembly and speech, conscience and religion, mobility rights in Section 6 for the, for the refusal to take the unvaccinated on planes and trains, freedom from arbitrary detention, the, the, uh, the mandatory quarantine hotels that they ran for a while. Um, for the most part, these didn't work. And of course, even if they had worked, and sometimes they worked, sometimes you had a rule that so plainly infringed one of these rights that the court had to say so and then found another reason why it was still okay. And he, this is the main reason. This is the famous Section 1 of our Charter. This is the reasonable limits exception. These rights and, and freedoms guaranteed in the Charter are subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be dem demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Now, that's wide enough to drive a truck through if you want to. And, and some courts used that exception to say that even though this rule, for example, there were rules prohibiting gathering for church services at the same time that some stores were open. Because gathering in stores is one thing that the state approves of, and gathering in churches was another thing that they didn't want to happen. And those rules clearly infringed your right of assembly, perhaps your freedom of religion, and so on. And the court said, well, they do, but it's a reasonable limit because of the situation that we are in. And for the most part, and I, I want to be clear that I, the courts, don't, courts don't act as a monolith. No one sends a memo from on high to all the judges and all the courts saying, you know, here's the attitude you should take about this. And that's not the way it works. And I'm not suggesting that all the courts and all the judges are all thinking the same way. And that wouldn't be correct. But if you look at the pattern, for the most part, I would argue that courts largely embraced not only the premise of the administrative state, but embraced the government COVID narrative. And you can see that if you, if you take a wander through the various cases that have been tried over the past two or three years, um, you'll, you'll see that in their decisions, in black and white, they have said things that have suggested that they are totally on side with the danger that has been portrayed that the, that the, uh, that the virus poses and the efficacy of the various rules that have been tried and, and put in place. Here, here are just a couple of, uh, I'll just take you through some examples. I mean, the, the, this is just to give you a flavor of the approach that many courts have taken. Here's a, here's a case from Manitoba. The factual underpinnings for managing a pandemic are essentially scientific. 
and fall outside the institutional expertise of courts. We don't know how to do this, and we don't want to do it. It is not an abdication of the court's responsibility to afford public health officials an appropriate measure of deference. There's the deference I was, the, the, the deference I was speaking of. There's the deference that makes the administrative state powerful. Courts don't want to deal with this. The judges don't have the expertise in these subject areas, and the officials do. That's the, that's the rationale. Here's another one. Like times of war, pandemics call for sacrifices. This court is equating COVID with being at war. And during times of war, governments are entitled to expect sacrifice from their citizens. In other words, you will do as you are told because we're in a crisis here and we are not going to tell the government not to do what it wants to do. That is a reflection of the premise of the administrative state. And note this, necessity, necessity is so often the rationale for putting public welfare ahead of individual autonomy. You can find necessity pretty much anywhere you look if you want to find it. If some are unwilling to make such sacrifices, the Constitution will not prevent the state from performing its essential function of protecting its citizens from that risk. And note the end there. It is not a given that the job of government is to protect citizens from risk. That is the job of the administrative state, but it is not the job necessarily of any government, uh, any government organization, of, of any conception of what government's supposed to be. There is the big idea that we don't know that we have. The idea that government has the job of protecting its citizens from risk. That is part of the premise that must be challenged. I would say, in my opinion, that the role of government is not to protect citizens from risk and that that function is the citizen's job to do on their own. But if you accept that premise, then you get the COVID regime. Another example. This is a job, uh, this is a, a case from Nova Scotia dealing with um, protests outside against lockdowns. Protesters are uninformed or willfully blind to the scientific and medical evidence that support those measures. Now, of course, we have a pretty good idea now that actually that's not true. And in fact, it might be actually the reverse, that the protesters actually had it exactly right. But that was not acceptable then. Why? Because of the premise. Because officials had said, we're going to have lockdowns. And officials have the authority, expertise, and discretion to decide the public good. There's your logic. If the officials have said so, then that's the conclusion. Therefore, the protesters must be wrong. 
This is not based upon evidence from the court or, you know, adduced in the court. I mean, there was evidence. But the evidence, as there is in any case, you'd hope to have conflicting evidence. That's the purpose of experts coming into a courtroom. I think this, I think that. Those two things conflict. The job of the court is to resolve those, that conflict and decide who makes more sense. But in so many of these COVID cases, the court would be inclined to dismiss the evidence of those who were challenging the rules and to embrace those producing evidence on the part of the government. So they show, the protesters show, a callous and shameful disregard for the health and safety of their fellow citizens. Just two more, and then I'm basically done, and if there are any questions, I'd be happy to take them. I'm able to take judicial notice. Now, here's a, here's a very interesting thing. In a number of cases, especially family law cases, a number of courts took judicial notice. Judicial notice means a judicial conclusion of facts not based upon evidence. Judicial notice is a thing. It's designed to allow a court to assume certain facts as true, even though there's no evidence, because those facts are so notorious that nobody would spend time debating them. The sky is blue. I mean, a court can take judicial notice of the fact that the sky is blue. Who would say otherwise? But the efficacy and safety of the vaccine was at least in part the issue in the case. And yet, in these cases, at least a handful of them, courts took judicial notice of the safety and efficacy of the vaccine precisely because they did not want to delve into the evidence. And finally, here's a really neat one. This is from an Ontario court. The COVID measures, the COVID measures who are, that are being challenged in this case, the COVID measures themselves, the ones that say, can't do this, can't do that, must do this. These COVID measures protected the constitutional rights of those individuals to life and security of the person. You see now how the charter is being exactly turned around. Instead of protecting you from the tyranny of the state, the charter in this paragraph is now being used as a rationale and justification for why the state must come down and tell you what to do in order to protect your neighbors. Okay. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll stop there and... No, <clears throat> Professor Party, before I uh, let the commissioners ask you questions, I wanted to ask if you could also comment perhaps on the doctrine of mootness yes. and how that has been applied to thwart some, some charter cases. Sure, yes. So, so mootness is, is this idea. Courts are tasked with resolving live disputes. If you went into a court today and you said, you know, I've always wondered about this question. What would happen if? If you did that, the court would throw you out because it's not a real dispute. It's theoretical and therefore moot. It's a waste of judicial resources and time. It's got to be concrete. It's got to be a real thing. So mootness comes along when a dispute that was real at the beginning becomes theoretical because something changed. 
the rule, for example, that was being challenged was repealed, taken away. So the person with the problem doesn't have the problem anymore because the rule is gone. And on that basis, courts will dismiss suits that are moot if the rules are withdrawn. However, the problem with doing that is that you essentially give a license to the government to bring the rule back. If you do not resolve the, the legal question about whether the rule was constitutional to begin with, then it's still an open question. And a few months or a few years down the road, the government could say, well, we didn't get into trouble the first time. Let's do it again. Or even more, in, a, in an even more sinister way, if you wanted to go this far, if you were the government, you could think, well, you know what? If we just keep playing this mootness game, we can put on the rule for as long as it takes the case to get to court. Before we hear the, get to the trial, we'll just take the, the thing away. It'll therefore be moot. The thing will be dismissed for mootness, and therefore we can put the rule back on. You know, sort of a cat and mouse game. Okay? That's the kind of reason why courts have the discretion to hear a case which is technically moot. And they often do. But in this COVID area, era, some courts have declined to do that for the reason I would say, I would, I would, I would posit that they don't want to. They don't want to be the ones to decide the COVID question. And understandably so. Here's one of the mistakes that, that people who have opposed COVID rules have made in terms of their thinking. They thought, this is crazy. This is something strangely, strange has happened to society. I'm going to take this mess to the court to have them sort it out and put things back together again. You are essentially asking the courts to serve a political function. Courts don't want to do that. They don't like to get involved in, in politics to that extent. And, and predictably, the situations in which they've been tried to give, be given that mandate, they've, they've backed away from it, and I quite understand that. But that's, I think that's the, uh, the story on the mootness. Thank you, Professor Party. I'll, I'll allow the commissioners to ask you questions. Um, but when you conclude, if you can give your thoughts of perhaps how this could be changed to prevent the administrative state. But, but we'll let the commissioners ask you questions first. Thank you, Mr. Party, for your testimony today. Um, I wrote down 100 questions, but wanted to hear your presentation throughout before I uh, tried to put them in some order that will help us to, to take this, uh, what you've told us today, and develop it into some recommendations in our final report. And so that's kind of how I'm framing uh, the way I'm going to ask these questions. Um, in, in trying to pinpoint where the problems are that we can address or provide recommendations to address, um, I heard you talk about an issue with the role of delegation from the elected uh, legislature to the unelected administrative um, regime, let's say. Uh, I heard an issue with the courts providing deference uh, to the administrative state. Um, I think I heard you talk about potentially the charter being too weak uh, to have protected rights uh, robustly and that it could be overdone, uh, overcome indirectly. And so I'm just trying to think about on each one of those levels what we could recommend. And if I start with the delegation um, 
problem. Uh, do you think that what's needed is a different standard, maybe uh, legislated standards as to when and how delegation uh, can be given from the unelected, from the elected legislature to the unelected administrative state? The short answer is yes. And thank you for the question. In a way, this is the question. There is, at least theoretically, a doctrine, a, a non-delegation doctrine, which we don't have in this country. The Americans do have a form of a non-delegation doctrine. In some places, it's not robust, but it does exist. In this country, we have essentially had the rule that a legislature can delegate its powers any way it likes, as long as it maintains the right to take them back. A better rule, in my view, would be a, it would be a, a non-delegation doctrine that said the following thing. And this, this work, by the way, has been done by a fellow named James Johnson, a very, a very thorough legal scholar and researcher. He's made this case in an article, amongst other places, in the UBC Law Journal. But he says this. Legislatures ha should have the job of articulating the substance of the rule. In other words, the RMPs and MPPs are elected to make policy decisions. That's legitimate. And as long as they make those judgment calls, that's fine. Those judgment calls between this and that, about you know, where the line should be drawn, what the considerations are, what, what values or virtues are going to be reflected in the rule, that's a legitimate thing for elected officials to do because they're elected. They have democratic legitimacy. But the job of making that call, making that difficult political call about where to draw the line, the substance of the rule, should be made in the legislature. So if the people don't like it, number one, they can see it being made, and number two, they can kick the bums out next time if they don't like it. What should not happen is that the statute should avoid having to make the hard call and send it off to some dark room in the back where you can't see the rule being made. Sometimes you don't even know what the effective rule is. Okay? That's the essence of the non-delegation doctrine. It should be sunlight. It should be democratic. It's not that the governments can't make policy choices. It's that they're not being made by the right body. And that's the essence of a non-delegation non doctrine. Thank you. Uh, so then moving on to uh, the issues we've seen with the courts uh, throughout the pandemic, um, you identified, I think, uh, quite rightly that uh, there's been a lot of deference given by the courts uh, to the decisions that have been made. And in terms of uh, thinking about recommendations we could make to maybe uh, strengthen the role of the courts, um, do we need statutes that set out perhaps better standards of evidence that are required before deference is provided? Um, maybe um, rules around when judicial notice can be taken? Do we need to strengthen that area? Uh, yes and no. So certainly rules of evidence are within the, the, the realm of the legislature to, to act upon. But there are some things about whether 
courts should get deference and the nature of judicial review and so on, that the courts are going to view as in their, in their area and not the legislatures. In other words, we have the, and quite rightly, and, and good that we do, we have a tradition of judicial independence. And the courts as an institution, again quite rightly, are going to look askew a little bit at legislative attempts to curb what it is that they can do when they review the very legislation that they are asked to do. In a sense, it's a constitutional dilemma. You want these three separate branches to do their job, and you want them to do it properly. We see a problem about how they're doing that job independently, and yet when one branch comes along to try and tell the other branch to do their job properly, that's interference with that branch by the first branch. So I don't have a simple answer to your question. It's a very good question. It's worth looking at the degrees to which legislatures could, could stipulate the legal rules about evidence to be applied in a court. On the other hand, the rule of judicial review, the constitutional standards for assessing when deference is going to be given and so on is largely common law in the sense it's developed by courts. And we should probably be careful about treading on that territory. Thank you. Uh, lastly, I'd just like to ask you about your uh, views on the Charter. And uh, I think I heard you um, essentially say that uh, a lot of the rules uh, that were put in place did not violate the Charter. I think that could probably be argued both ways uh, by many lawyers. Sure. Uh, but if let's, let's accept that perhaps that uh, is the conclusion that the courts will reach. Is it then your opinion that our Charter needs to be changed or revised? Oh, I, I think our charter needs to be revised, yes, for, definitely. I, I think it has proven to be inadequate to the task that people expect of it. I think the prospects for revising it are very, very poor. And I would even be reluctant to go down that road because once you open it up, you are also subject to the forces that might want the charter to be more what it's becoming instead of less. In other words, a charter looks like a roster of individual rights and freedoms. Over time, it is probably less of that and more of a progressive blueprint for common interventions. Uh, the, the, for example, the, the way that the Supreme Court over a period of decades has interpreted Section 15.1, which is the equality provision, from one that I read as providing in Section 15.1 a requirement for equal treatment in the law. The Supreme Court has basically said that 15.1 and 2 together requires substantive equality. Now that is, a, that is a, a real conflict in vision. If we opened up the Charter, I would be concerned that we would go further down that road instead of back to the one that I would like to, like to see. All right, thank you. I'm going to stop my questions there. Thank you for your testimony. Like my colleague, I have a hundred questions. <laughs> and although we have the ability to ask those hundred questions, I don't think anybody would stay for them. But I have a few questions. And we talked about, or you've talked about, uh, the, uh, the three branches of, uh, of uh, government, if that's the right term. You know, we often talk about another branch of government unofficially 
And I ask this question because when I look around this room, and I looked around, I did this as well in our last hearing, and I will do it in every hearing, and I, don't, I only see a very thin representation from that other branch of government, and I'm talking about the press. Right. Um, but in my mind, there's another component as well, and that's the component of the people. Uh, and I start to look at the participation in our, in our, uh, in our political system, and I start to look at the numbers of people that vote or don't vote, and the number of people that get um, elected by uh, a acclamation in our country. And, uh, and I also look at the incredible power of the leader, of each of the leaders of the two or three political parties we have. In other words, the candidate doesn't even get to run unless they're vetted by that. So having said that giant mouthful, uh, how do we re-engage the public? How do we re-engage the press in an honest and open way? Uh, big question, but, but I think that, would you agree that that's kind of the fundamental of getting change? Because if you're not holding the big stick, they won't make the change, and you can only hold the big stick if you can engage the population. Would you? Is that a reasonable statement? Uh, yes, it's a, absolutely, it is. But it's also all tangled up. The problem that is, right? Because it's not just a case of electing the government that you will solve the problem. Because the idea is 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 deep enough so that the particular stripe of party that's in power doesn't actually change the game. So elections and democratic participation and so on is, is very important. But it's not the whole story either. I mean, there's, I, I'm afraid I think it goes back to the set of ideas people carry around. So let's, let's talk about the press for a minute. So for some reason, we have come to the idea, a lot of people have, I think, in the here and now, that the, the, the job of, of the press whether or not it's the legacy press or the new independent press, or for that matter, just the, just the people online, that their job, their responsibility, is to tell the truth. And in fact, that if you are speaking, whether it's in a forum or online or what the case, as the case may be, that if you are not speaking the truth, that you are not really exercising your free speech legitimacy. Legitimately. And that, that's, in my opinion, completely wrong. Free speech, upon which our press traditions are based, is not based upon truth. As soon as you have the idea that people have to speak the truth to be allowed to speak, now you've got a real problem. Because now you have to define what the truth is. And the only party able to do that is the government. So now you have free speech that's supervised by government approval of what you're saying. That's the opposite of free speech. You're allowed to say what you think, not because it's true, but because it's what you think. And that got to apply to the press too. And the job of a free citizen in a democratic country is to take all the things that they hear from everywhere and to understand that it might not be true and decide for themselves what is. And, you know, that's just one of the many ideas we have to get embedded into 
our people again. Um, I have a, a, another one, and, and um, I, I very much enjoyed your talk, and I, I learned a lot from you. But my question is, is to you is, would you consider what happened here, in your opinion, to be a, a, a significant breach of at least what Canadians' perception of their freedom is? I think it was a breach of their perception, yes. Okay. See, part of what happened during this period, if I can put it this way, is a lot of Canadians discovered that their perception was wrong. And that's a hard lesson. We've, we've been assuming that the system works in a certain way and that we have certain rights and freedoms. It says so in the document. Why wouldn't we believe in it? And then this thing comes along and you find out that what you thought is not true at all. So if there's any silver lining to this period, it might be that the curtain has been pulled back on the way the thing actually works and what it actually means. And having discovered that, now's the time, if we don't like what we see, got to fix it. Um, next question has to do with, um, and this is going to sound odd, but why are you here telling me this? And, and the reason I say that and the way I'm doing it is because if reasonable people consider what happened to be a fundamental challenge to what we understand our country to be, why is the, the, the head solicitor general of the country or the Supreme Court justice not sitting in that place to explain it to us as Canadians rather than, than and not, not to be insulting, but, uh, you know, a, 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 a university professor or a lecturer, why is a Supreme Court justice not sitting here telling me what, what it is? There are many ways to answer that question. Here's one of them. Because... Number, number one, because it would probably be out of line for them to do that. But also because, and I don't want to speak to every single one of them, but a lot of them will believe in the premise that I discussed. They really do think that it is the job of government to protect us and to manage society. It is the job of public servants to fix social problems. That's part of the premise. And if you were to stand up in public and say, no, 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 no. Governments and their officials should not be primarily involved in bringing the power of the state to bear to fix social problems and keep people safe. Okay, now I'm talking heresy. Absolute heresy. Certainly amongst that population of people who are, after all, involved in their careers in that enterprise. If you were to be a, be a person with prominence in that era and stand up and say that, you would be undermining the whole machine. My last question is, what is the standard for the courts or the police when it comes to making a ruling, like you talked about the ruling at Gateway Bible Baptist Church in Manitoba, right. so they make a ruling and then evidence becomes public shortly thereafter that proves that ruling incorrect. 
what is the process? Do the, do the, can the courts readdress that on their own? Do there has to, has to be a, I don't, I, I'm wondering what the, what the, what the yes, process Yes, it's, it's, it's very unusual to go back to a case. The general rule is that once a decision is done, it's done. Um, in very narrow circumstances, in certain kinds of cases, if new evidence does come to light, like for example, let's say somebody has been convicted of a crime and is in, in prison, and new evidence comes to light, there's a process for applying to reopen the situation. But as a general course, that is not what's done. It, the, the new evidence becomes relevant to the next time around if that issue should arise again. But for the most part, a, a, a case is a, is, a, is a finished case. Thank you. Just one question. I see we have a, another commissioner. Just, just one question. And, and I do too. So I'll let you go first, Professor Party. We clearly did not give you enough time. Thank you so much for your presentation. It really helps me to understand a lot of uh, situation we're in. I just want to come back to your administrative state, which is probably prevalent in all of the Western Absolutely. society. Absolutely, yes. And to me, I've been living in the administrative state during my career, and one of the things that I've always struggled with is that there seems to be a disconnection between authority and accountability. Mm -hmm. So how, is there a way to reintroduce true accountability within the administrative state? That's a very good question as well. So you would think, you would like to think that authority would come along with accountability. The, the, those two things should really travel together. Right? But they often don't. And part of the reason for that is, and this is reflected um, in, in the law, the way the courts have developed it as well, which is if you are trying to sue the government for negligence, for example, you are able to sue them for operational failures. So let, let's say the, the government has adopted a policy of, of paving roads in a certain way, in a certain place, certain, in a certain frequency, and they fail to do that properly. The road isn't well done, there's potholes, it's dangerous, and you have an accident on the road because of their failure to carry out the policy. Okay? You can do that. You can hold the government liable for its negligence as long as it's an operational failure. You generally cannot sue the government for its policy decisions. Hmm. If the policy creates bad outcomes, there is no cause of action. And that makes sense, in a way, for this reason. All policy decisions create some bad outcomes for somebody. That's the nature of a policy decision. It's a matter of, of, of weighing costs and benefits and drawing a line somewhere. And some people are going to be on one side of the line and some people are going to be on the other. And so it'd be very problematic for us to say you can sue them for policy decisions. That probably won't work, right? It's part of the democratic process to give the elected officials, as I said before, the power to make those kinds of policy decisions. And you would never be able to sue a legislature for the policy that it in put inside a statute that was properly passed. That just, just wouldn't go. Because of time, I'm going to defer on my question. We, we must take a, a lunch break. But Professor Party, I want to thank you on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry for coming for sharing your thoughts. I think I speak for the commissioners and everyone present that you have 
made us think about things in a different way, and we thank you for your contribution. Thanks for having me. I think we're taking a lunch break till 1.15. Edward Ray Auger, it's Mark with a C, M-A-R-C, Auger, A-U-G-E-R. And Mr. Auger, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Now, you were a, a, a professional firefighter for 30 years. Yes. And I, I, I want to say you had the good fortune of retiring just as COVID were, was hitting, but... Um, you retired just before COVID hit. Yes, I did not have to deal with any of that. Right. But you had to deal with your father, um, Pierre. Can you please share with us what your experience was with him and the different COVID policies? Yes, my uh, father um, was, had early onset dementia, and uh, he could not live on his own. So he moved in with my sister, um, and lived with her for about three years. But uh, on June the 7th, 2021, uh, we had to admit him to uh, long-term care. Um, and that was at the height of COVID when there was a bunch of mandates and restrictions. And uh, I was his power of attorney. And at times I was not allowed into the home uh, to visit him. And uh, it made my job as a power of attorney very difficult. Now, when he moved in, um, were you allowed in that day? The day he was admitted to the long-term care, yes, I had to go in uh, to fill out a bunch of forms. <clears throat> okay, so you were allowed in that day, but then you weren't allowed in after that? Yes, there was periods of times I was not allowed in. And um, what was the reason you weren't allowed in? At that time, I was unvaccinated. And how did that make you feel? Uh... Segregated, very segregated. Uh, I don't think I should have been prevented from going into the home um, just because of my vaccination status. Right, so I mean, even if you tested negative, their policy was that you couldn't go in? Well, at the time, um, th there was no testing when he was admitted. Um, later on, they did bring in uh, rapid testing and uh, since I was a primary caregiver, I was allowed to get back in and see him on November the 23rd. Um, and the frustrating thing for me is, to this day, when I go visit him in long-term care, I still have to rapid test, everyone rapid tests um, before they can go in and visit. So, you, so mean, you mean in March 2023? Yes, I was there last week. and. Everyone who goes to visit in a long-term care home has to rapid test. So <clears throat> he went into long-term care on June 7th of 2021. You weren't allowed back till November 23rd, 2021. Did you notice a difference in your father when you were allowed back? 
Yes, I did notice when I was in to visit him, um, his dementia uh, declined, and I'm convinced that the decline was due to him being um, basically locked in his room. They received all their meals in the room. I couldn't come and visit. Uh, my sister could visit because she was vaccinated, um, and she had to try to explain to my father why I could not come in and visit him. Now, after you started um, being able to visit him, did you notice a change? So, so you were able to start visiting again in November, and you'd noticed a decline. Yes. Did anything happen after you started visiting him? After I could uh, go in and visit, um, the very first time I saw him, uh, he didn't even recognize me. And then uh, after a few visits, uh, he could recognize me. But uh, it was like every time I went, there was different rules. So sometimes we'd have to meet outside. They, they'd have a table set outside, uh, and he would be in his wheelchair on one side, and I'd be on the other side of the table, mass sitting outside, um, trying to carry on a conversation with someone with dementia. It was very frustrating. <clears throat> now, I want to change subjects, and you went to the hospital um, back in October of 2021. Yes. And so can you tell us about that experience? Uh, I ended up showing up at a hospital on a Friday night with severe abdominal pains. And after a bunch of tests, um, it, it, the, I was diagnosed with uh, appendicitis and I needed emergency surgery to remove my appendix. So I was admitted to the hospital at that time and I was laying on a bed, a stretcher in the hallway, and as they were doing uh, the admitting to the hospital, the nursing uh, team was doing all the paperwork and they said part of being admitted to the hospital and needing surgery is we have to do a COVID test. But they weren't concerned because they knew I was fully vaccinated. And once I informed them that I was not vaccinated, uh, the, the whole demeanor changed. The nurse left the bedside, um, came back and said, um, we have now found a room for you. Originally, they told me I'd have to spend the night in the hallway on a stretcher because there was no rooms. So can I, so I just break in? So what you're telling us is, is you're told you, you, you got to basically spend the night in the hallway on a stretcher. Waiting when, for surgery. When they think you're vaccinated. But the minute they find out you're unvaccinated, they're gonna, they found a room immediately. Yes, I was uh, rolled in on the stretcher into a single room, you know, glassed-in room, and that's where I spent the night in this glassed-in room on the stretcher. They didn't even transfer me onto a hospital bed. I spent the night on the stretcher. Now, were you tested for COVID during your stay? Yes, they did the test. Once they knew they were admitting me, they did a test, and uh, the test did come back negative. So the hospital knows that you do not have COVID? Yes. So did the treatment improve when the test came back? I felt very segregated. I was in a room by myself, had to wear a mask the whole time I was in this room, and one of the most disturbing parts of it was is 
through the night I had to get up and go to the bathroom and there wasn't a bathroom in the room. So I got up uh, off my bed, went down the hallway to the bathroom. When I came back, I noticed there was a yellow post-it note stuck on the glass lighting door and it had one word written on it, unvaccinated. And how did that make you feel? Not very good. Um, and it just sort of, I was on my own, you know. My wife could come in and see me. Uh, she went home for the night, but she was in in the morning again. But she was the only one that was allowed in. Did you get much nursing attention that night? I only recall a couple uh, times the nurse came into the room to check on me. <clears throat> now, you're waiting for surgery. Yes, I had surgery the next day. <clears throat> and this is emergency surgery? Yes, they had to call in a surgeon and an anesthesiologist and, and uh, two surgical nurses to do my surgery, and I was the only surgery done that Saturday. And uh, am I correct in suggesting to you that this was a life and death situation? Uh, that I cannot answer, but uh, I was in a lot of pain, and they told me that they had to come out. So that's why they did it the next day. Right. <clears throat> now, you were um, telling us that at the hospital you were treated differently once they found out you were unvaccinated. Uh, has your status changed, your vaccination status? Yes. Uh, I, I did get vaccinated. Um, I 100% uh, regret that decision I made. Um, I was not anti-vax, I was vaccine hesitant. And the reason I was vaccine hesitant is um, I have had two bouts of pericarditis in my lifetime, once as a teenager in high school and once in my uh, 20s as a firefighter. And both times it was very painful and I required medication to um, get over the pericarditis. And I started doing research at the very beginning of COVID, and what I could find out, it seemed like it was very hard to get information, but I did find out that the mRNA vaccines and the AstraZeneca vaccines both had possible side effects of heart inflammation, and I wasn't willing to take the risk. So I researched Johnson & Johnson, and at the time, Johnson & Johnson was purchased by the Canadian government, but they did not release it to the provinces. So I basically waited until it was available um, in Ontario before I considered taking it. Did you feel that... Sorry, I turned my mic off. Did you feel that... Um... Uh, you were perfectly free to take the vaccine or not take the vaccine? No, I, I to this day I feel like I was 100% coerced into that decision. Uh, mainly because of the experience I had in the long-term care home, trying to look after my father, and the experience I received at the hospital as being an unvaccinated patient needing surgery. <clears throat> what happened when you were vaccinated? I was very hesitant to getting vaccinated. Um, the last vaccine I did receive was a shingles vaccine, and I did have a reaction to that, which was another reason I was vaccine hesitant. Um, but I just felt like I, this 
I was being coerced into doing this because if I wanted to do anything, I had to be vaccinated, you know. Um, so I got vaccinated on December the 23rd. And the next day, I felt like I got run over by a truck. I was uh, in a lot of uh, pain. I have arthritis. Uh, it just seems like my arthritis flared up. For the first week, I was in a lot of pain. And then ever since then, my arthritis has been worse. And I've talked to my doctor about it, and my doctor has no explanation. She just suggested to uh, increase my arthritis medication. And so this was a sudden change? Uh, the day after being vaccinated, I was sore for a week. Like, it was hard getting in and out of bed, walking up and down stairs. Everything hurt, just hurt. And then uh, for the first year, my shoulders, I had a hard time sleeping on my side. My shoulders would hurt. Uh, it's been progressively getting better because it's been well over a year. But I'm still not back to the way I felt pre-vaccination. Now you have not gotten your second shot. Well, that's one of the reasons I did decide to go with Johnson & Johnson because it was a one-shot vaccination. You were considered fully vaccinated. And it was a viral vector vaccine, which was closer to the flu shot, which I have received before and didn't have reactions to. Uh, but the one thing that really frustrates me is when you uh, see anything in mainstream media is they always talk about two shots. To be fully vaccinated, you need your two shots. But Johnson & Johnson wasn't that way. At one shot, you're considered vaccinated, but they never talk about it. Why did the government push the mRNA vaccines? Did they, did they want multiple shots? I, I don't have the answer. Mr. Auger, you've had you know, several experiences concerning government policy decisions on COVID. What, what would you think we should do differently if we were to face this again? Everything. Uh, to me, uh, anyone who spoke against it was silenced. Um, there should have been more open conversation uh, about getting vaccinated, not getting vaccinated, side effects. It just seemed very rushed to me, and the government just kept moving the goalpost, you know. Um, it was, get your two shots, uh, you're done. Now get a booster, you know. Now mix and match vaccines. It, it, it just... It was like the science was changing constantly, and they didn't really have the um, uh, the science to back it up. It just kept changing. It just happened too quickly. Thank you, Mr. Auger. I have no further questions. The commissioners might have questions. So we're good. Thank you so much for your testimony. Thank you for the opportunity.
So our next witness today is uh, Catherine Swift. <clears throat> Catherine, can I get you to state your full name for the record and spell your first and net last name for the record? Catherine Susan Swift, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-S-W-I-F-T, like Taylor. And uh, thank you. And Catherine, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. And I, I'll say it's nice to finally meet you in person. We've spoken <laughs> several times on the phone. Now, <clears throat> you are currently president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. And I need you to speak, not nod, because right. we're being recorded. Yes, I am. <clears throat> Can you just briefly just give us a brief idea of what what uh, the CCMBC does? We're basically an advocacy organization for businesses. We started off being exclusively uh, representing manufacturers, but in the last couple of years we've branched out to other sectors of the economy. Um, most of our members are still in Ontario, but we do have some elsewhere in Canada, but we're still largely Ontario-based. And basically we just advocate on the issues that are most important to business uh, at any given time, taxation, regulation, red tape, uh, energy. Energy issues have been huge lately, um, as manufacturers in particular uh, consume quite a bit of electricity, for example, and other and other uh, energy sources. So, um, but there's a whole range of, of different issues that we end up getting involved with, and we're we're quite independent relative to other business organizations. Most business organizations um, are somewhat financed by government, and it ends mm -hmm. up that they are. Uh, often end up more as a representative of government than they actually end up as a representative of business. So nope. we, we very deliberately don't do that. And you used to uh, be at the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Yes, I was the president and CEO of, of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business for almost, well, I was president uh, for 20 years, and I was a chief economist there and some other positions for another seven. So I was there almost 30 years Right, and, and prior to that you were in government and banking. You have a long history as uh, an economist and then running uh, basically business organizations. Now, <clears throat> you have surveyed a number of the CCMBC members to get their feedback on how government COVID policies affected them. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yep. And we've invited you here today to share with us what businesses are reporting back to you. So please do share with us what you've discovered. Yeah, um, I've sort of ca I, I sort of divided these the responses I got. I surveyed about 23 businesses total, um, and I divided the responses into the really common ones that virtually everyone had, and some of the more anecdotal stories that might have been unique to one business or two businesses. Um, in terms of the the common issues. Um, the, the three the three most common issues, uh, and I would have to say the number one one the number one issue was issues with employees. Now there was quite a diverse uh, uh, range of issues with employees, and that's not surprising. Um, and in these types of businesses, I might I might add that most of our members are probably small to medium sized businesses. So the the business owner typically has a lot more interaction with the employees than you you find in a big corporation where people don't even meet the CEO in their entire careers and whatnot. So they, they, had, they have more of a personal connection uh, with their employees. And 
the, the number one issue was um, employees, the, the government assistance discouraging employees from working. And despite how many measures the employer may have put in place to, to and, and people were scared, let's face it, there's no question about that. Um, but no matter, the employers tried to do their best to, to um, you know, to have their employees realize they were, they were running a, a very clean, you know, a very safe workplace uh, in all kinds of different ways. Um, but the fact that the government assistance, and also not just the, the, the magnitude, but also the duration of the government assistance, because it went on and on and on long after, really, there was a big concern about COVID. Um, and also the, the fact that there was very little, and, and we know this from other sources, very little qualification for these monies. They were basically you know, it was basically uh, uh, distributed very freely. We know a lot of 16-year-olds that never worked in their life, God serve, uh, and whatnot. Uh, but, um, but that was frustrating for employers. Most of these businesses, in fact, almost all of them stayed operating. They were all designated as essential, so they weren't closed. Of course, the closed businesses had a whole different set of issues. Um, but those, those employee issues were, were very uh, extensive. Um, and, and we found naturally there were a lot of cost increases that businesses had to comply, putting partitioning in, um, changing the, the spacing of employees in their workplace. Um, uh, some of the employers uh, had vaccination within their workplace if that was possible. Others facilitated employees getting to vaccination if they wanted it. Um, and, and so there was an, an increased cost. And there were some government programs that, that were supposed to cover some of those increased costs, but most of them didn't find them sufficient or found they were just so difficult to apply for that it was, they, they just got frustrated and said, forget it, I'll just absorb uh, the costs of that. So, so the employee issues were, were very, very extensive. Um, uh, one other factor I heard was the demonization of unvaccinated employees within the workplace and how it was divisive within a workplace uh, to, for that reason. Um, and I, one, one business gave me the example that they happened to have a union and the union couldn't decide whether they were going to defend the unvaccinated. So one day they'd be on their side, then the next day they'd be vilifying the unvaccinated and siding with, and, and they said it was just so, chaotic and divisive for that business. It really, it really was problematic uh, for the operation of that business. So that was kind of an odd, kind of an odd result that happened there. Um, so that, that issue, and I, I don't know if you want me to get into all the anecdotal stuff now or exactly how you want to, because there, there were a number of... of I actually think when you're on a topic that might be helpful. So you're talking about, you know, employee issues and some specific examples on how the benefits basically were too generous and too long, and that created, I presume, employees, you know, quitting or staying at home rather than coming to work. So some examples on that would be helpful. Yeah. Um, well, again, you know, the, the, uh, the, a lot of people decided they liked staying home, uh, and that's, again, that's understandable, um, and that was facilitated, obviously, by, by the benefits. Um, and so the the, just the difficulties in operating uh, were, were problematic. There was also the case that um, when the money was sloshing around so very liberally, 
literally and figuratively, um, uh, that uh, people found um, uh, that they, they would know in their neighborhood, say, that somebody was getting benefits. And every, everybody was sort of aware and, and com almost competitively com comparing what was going on. Because some businesses, if they could afford it, actually shut down for periods of time. And, and um, that would naturally mean that our, our members' businesses were looked upon as, as problematic because they kept operating. Um, and so there, there was a number of really interesting, I guess, impacts there. Um, some of the, the employers were, tr were, were, of course, trying to support their employees as best as possible, and they, they felt, they, they did feel, um, and I suspect you've heard this from other people, uh, that the, the, alarmist, um, uh, the alarmist news, constant, constant drumbeat of alarmist news, uh, death counts every day, and you know, all this was, was way over the top. And, in the case of media, you can expect that, but the, but governments were very unhelpful as well. They sort of uh, went to the extreme um, uh, in, instead of p possibly being a little more moderate in in their approach. Uh, something also with the with the CERB benefits that was commented on, and, and partly the, the notion of them going uh, on longer than they really needed to, um, they seemed to be very politicized as well. Uh, they were they a lot of employers felt they were more a tool for the government to try to gather votes than to actually be necessary and actually, um, uh, and of course a lot of money was spent as well. A lot of tax dollars was spent, um, so they they weren't they almost weren't even pandemic related anymore. They were more, you know, they became a political tool to uh, to uh, encourage people to vote uh, liberal. Um, in terms of can, some, can, uh, I, can I just stop you there? Sorry. I just want to make sure that we understand what you're saying. So, can you share with us maybe a conversation or two? You don't have to disclose the the person or persons, but I just want to make sure we understand um, because I believe you're saying that uh, business owners are, are reporting back to you that at some point having to take these measures, it felt more like a political exercise than a public health exercise. And I think that's an important point for us to understand. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was just that they lasted lo much longer than, you know, they were renewed. And then, of course, we did have a federal election in 2021. So the linkage with that federal election seemed to be pretty, you know, pretty direct. So that was, that was the, uh, the, the sense that a lot of businesses had. Um, uh, I, I just want to mention the other two of the, the big three, so to speak. Um, naturally, supply chain, everybody knew there was massive supply chain problems. Costs increased dramatically, tripling, quadrupling costs for materials, and if you could get it at all, uh, things like lumber, steel, um, and so on. Um, also, naturally, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, um, uh, sanitizer, uh, all of those kinds of things uh, were, were difficult and, and, and everybody, I think, faced that. Um, one of the almost funny stories was that uh, a number of businesses found toilet paper was being stolen out of their business washrooms. So they had a terrible time trying to keep toilet paper in the washrooms. And one business in particular uh, said he just decided he would, he would give employees so much toilet paper every week and they were responsible for keeping, because it was just getting crazy that he couldn't keep toilet paper in the washroom. So I thought that was an totally unexpected um, uh, outcome, at least in my view. Um, 
so yes, the, the supply chain problems were extremely rare, extremely problematic. And, and interesting enough, a lot of them are just starting to be resolved fairly recently. So even though we think the pandemic's probably been largely the worst part largely over for a year or so, um, the, the problems continued uh, with can, things like can, supply can chain. Can you give us a, an example of that? Like, well, I lumber, think, I think lumber, lumber quadrupled, eight. for example. Um, you know, so it was mostly, a lot of the manufacturers naturally use a lot, of, a lot of those types of materials as inputs, so it was massive price increases or just unavailability, period. So naturally that meant they had to either slow down their operations or temporarily um, uh, temporarily postpone and, and so on. So that really affected people a great deal and increased their costs and they couldn't necessarily increase their prices to, to accommodate that. Um, and the other big issue was transportation related and this was very much a policy driven uh, problem because for example a lot of these businesses do business in the U.S. And um, uh, U.S. truck drivers were about 50% vaccinated. So when they imposed those constraints at the border, that uh, truck drivers sitting in their cab alone all day, not probably seeing hardly anybody, needed to be vaccinated, uh, that immediately took a whole pile of these truckers right out of the right out of the equation. And I heard of many, many businesses that did business in the U.S. that couldn't get somebody to ship to the border from the U.S. because they would mostly be American, you know, truck drivers. Now, can Another, I, can I interrupt you? So at the time, like, we never imposed a requirement on Canadian truck drivers driving within Canada to vaccinate, did we? Not d domestically, but to cross the U.S. border, we did. And, and another interesting observation uh, one business made was he, the, he believes the government overstated the extent to which Canadian truck drivers were vaccinated. You might recall there was talk of 90% or so, so that they, the government said, though, this policy won't be horribly damaging because most, you know, the vast majority, he felt it was probably more like 60%. So that, that were, that, that was actually true about, uh, and we never really saw any reputable data on that. So it, 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 you know, there was no, no one to sort of challenge it one way or the other. But naturally, the fact that Canadian truck drivers all of a sudden also needed, you know, supposedly to be vaccinated across the border caused an, an awful lot of problems in addition to um, the U.S. situation. Um, and again, we saw one example I actually heard quite frequently was costs for, say, a load, uh, uh, like one, you know, one um, a tractor trailer um, went from about $1,500 to about 8000 So it was, it was quite a significant, you know, very significant increase. And it was just shortages. There were just shortages of drivers was, was the, the problem there. And that was 100% policy created. That didn't have to happen. Um, so that was that was an, that, and those I think were were certainly uh, the the big three issues um, that uh, that virtually all business faced businesses faced uh, in one way or another. Um, another complaint we heard quite a lot of was all of, about the programs that were directed to businesses themselves. 
Um, so some of them were wage subsidies to retain employees. But one thing that really was problematic for an awful lot of businesses was that the government, no, notably the feds, sometimes Ontario was involved as well and sometimes other provinces, but it was notably the federal government um, was paying companies to uh, manufacture, say, P PPE because there were shortages because they didn't keep, you know, they didn't keep sufficient supplies uh, in, in uh, the various government agencies that are supposed to do that. Um, and I heard a number of examples of, uh, there was one particular example that uh, 3M was given, uh, it was 40 odd million dollars, big, big chunk of money, split between Ontario, this one was split between Ontario and the federal government. There were all kinds of smaller firms that easily could have done that. 3M, it was to make N95 masks, and 3M doesn't, you know, this, they, they built a whole new facility to do this when existing Canadian companies were well capable of doing it, um, and, and, but they weren't liberal enough. They, were, they didn't have that partisan connection. They didn't donate to the party. Um, I also heard that of there was an auto parts manufacturer that was paid to switch production to uh, masks. Um, and again, it was ridiculous. There were, there were already firms out there that could easily have ramped up production, but they weren't in the right riding. They were, you know, it was a partisan decision, not a sensible health-based nope. or, you know, sensible business decision. So that was, that was a very common um, issue I heard as well. Um, and also just eligibility, and, and we know this because we've seen some, some case studies about how um, uh, businesses uh, didn't, need, didn't need the money, but nevertheless was still giving out bonuses, was still, you know, still highly profitable, but they were accepting government money. So there was such little oversight on the part of government to the individuals and, um, and businesses that they were shelling out money to that much more got spent. And this had obviously had competitive implications for businesses as well. So sometimes their competitor would get some contract which made utterly no sense and it would damage um, someone's, uh, someone's business as a result. Something we did as an organization actually was we shared a lot of information um, among members, sometimes some particular commodity that was in demand, one happened to have a stockpile of and could help others and, and, and so on. So, and we also uh, attempted to deal with the, um, the uh, Ontario government in particular in terms of trying to, trying to suggest some best practices um, because a lot of these policies made zero sense from a, from a business standpoint. Um, they didn't consult business. They just put in some top-down kind of policy, with the, obviously without thinking about it very much, and it caused all kinds of problems. This, 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 this 3M example of the fact that they built this new factory, a neighboring business actually had to shut down twice at a very inconvenient time, and they wouldn't change it to permit this new, this new plant to be connected to the electricity grid. So, so that's just, again, a, a, a particular example, but they weren't listening to business at all. They were just, uh, you know, applying these policies uh, willy-nilly, uh, over, over the top, and, and um, often in a kind of way that made people even more worried than, than they had to be. Um, businesses also, another, another red tape related issue, some businesses were required to do daily, daily assessments, temperature taking and that kind of thing, and actually filling out paper and, and some of the businesses said, where did all this paper go? I can't believe anybody actually looked at it because it was just so voluminous uh, and, and so it, it just seemed like a stupid a stupid policy to be to be doing, um, as they felt that it, it wasn't even getting used by government uh, when once it was done. Um, 
and the inconsistency as well. This is something for the future. Uh, every government in Canada was doing different stuff, uh, and, and there was no commonality. Businesses that operate in more than one jurisdiction had different rules applied to them, and, and it was absurd to try to implement uh, all these different kinds of rules. So that was another, um, you know, in, in future, businesses should get their act together and, and coordinate policies and have consistent policies instead of, um, you know, making businesses jump through all these hoops uh, that are different um, depending on where you're located. So that was another, another factor. Um, we had a number of comments on the healthcare system in general because if uh, one business actually had an employee that um, was ill, couldn't get treatment in the hospital and passed away when normally that particular health issue should have been treatable and so that this business owner very much felt that they lost, you know, obviously the p person lost their life and, and, uh, and, and they felt it could, it, it should, if, if times had been normal and the hospitals hadn't been so uh, inefficient, then they, they they would have been saved, uh, and another another gave the example of um, one of their senior employees whose mother ended up having to go into hospital for some reason, caught COVID when she was in hospital, and passed away. And the the woman was so worried uh, because this had happened to her mother that she retired much earlier than she was planning to do, and the business lost a senior valued you know person as a result. So the problems in the healthcare system obviously had a a pretty big effect on uh, on businesses as well as it did um, on all of us. Um, oh, what haven't I touched on here? Um, some of the, I guess some of the other anecdotal issues that I can, uh, I can mention. Um, uh, the Fed, I had the complaint frequently that the, the federal government in particular, but some of the provinces as well, and much of the media reporting was created his, almost a hysteria and, and, and was, uh, you would you would think a government role would actually be to calm people down, but no, it seemed to be uh, quite the contrary. And because they, none of them looked like they had any clue what they were doing, um, even though they all have departments that are supposedly uh, tasked uh, to deal with this, um, was it created more problems than it solved. Um, one business mentioned that they happened to have an engineer employee, but he, he became so absolutely paranoid that he poisoned the entire workplace for, for this particular business uh, and, and created an awful lot of problems, Just and that was just one person. Um, he, another story that was, again, a little bit uh, strange was that people were so worried about coming to work, but then they'd encounter each other in the local Walmart, you know, um, because they weren't, they didn't know what to do with their, their time, so they'd, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd go out shopping or something like that, so that was, that was interesting. And the fact that the, um, a number of them said they, uh, some of their suppliers were small firms, and even though, um, they weren't at-risk businesses, they were nevertheless shut down, and it, it infuriated them to see the Walmarts and the Costcos and the, you know, the big uh, Home Depots and so on remaining open when some of their smaller suppliers that they dealt with for ages were closed and there was absolutely, or were shut down, and there was absolutely no reason um, that should have happened. So that was, a, that was another problem that arose. Um, one business mentioned that um, he said, you know, the old adage is 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And he said during the pandemic, it became more like 10% of the people did 90% of the work uh, because of all the changes. Um, and the other, 
and businesses, a lot of businesses were still looking to hire even, well, in, during the pandemic because they were losing some employees to, to various things, but they were, they were competing with, with government uh, that was basically paying people to stay home. Um, oh, another, another, another interesting observation was that in 2020, for a few months, the CRA told businesses that they didn't have to make source deductions. It was supposedly to provide a break, I guess, but of course they were ultimately due uh, and they had to catch up later. And so businesses, and, and again, you know, they, they uh, had problems after the fact because naturally they had to pay a lot more um, for those source deductions um, than they would have had to if, they, if they'd had to, if they'd been able to just do them on a regular um, on, on their regular uh, monthly basis or quarterly basis depending on the size of the business. I think, I think those are most of the main points that, um, that I found with, with my interviews of, of these different businesses so perhaps uh, perhaps there are some other questions that, that you might have. I'll open you up to the commissioners, but I, I did want to ask, um, because you're well positioned for, to answer the question, but what do you think government should have done or could have done differently to make things more reasonable for these businesses? And I get the impression from your evidence that there was a lot of frustration that things didn't seem um, fair or, or thought through. I mean, even just small suppliers being closed and yet bigger suppliers where you think people would be more at risk being left open. So I'm just curious what your thoughts would be. Yeah, I think there's a few things that governments um, could do uh, better. Um, a lot of them, again, consulting with business to see what, what would work for them. Not that that would be a perfect solution, but uh, they, they virtually did no consultation with business. And, and in our particular case, we were providing government with information as to be best practices, what we thought would be better ways to do it. They did none of it. They, <laughs> there was clearly no uh, responsiveness uh, to that. Um, so that was obviously a problem uh, because I think they, they could have had a lot better policies if they'd listened to business. The consistency issue. Why couldn't governments get together and do things to do things you know, comparably in different parts of the country, municipal, federal, and, and provincial. Um, so they didn't impose different rules all the time, that much of which didn't seem to make any sense at all. Um, the, 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 the partisan element of it was def definitely came into play. Um, and, and granted, to be fair, of course, we didn't, none of, none of us, even, even, you know, you had scientists disagreeing with each other, you had doctors disagreeing with each other, you know, the, um, and, and the so-called science on it was, was not um, settled, I guess you could say, uh, uh, but, but often political considerations seem to override the science that they did know about. So, so that would be something that, um, uh, you know, in future, uh, try to justify these things, not just sort of throw everything at the wall and, um, and see what sticks. Um, but most of, it, most of it is really consulting in, instead of a, a top-down approach. Um, just just talking to people and seeing what and be, and being responsive, of course, because that one person that just asked them to delay the closure of his plant by a week and they couldn't do that, you know that, that just to, why not? You know that that kind of thing to me just seemed utterly ridiculous. That they and so they put a major cost on his business because of having to shut down at a very very bad time for that particular business. So those are certainly, um, I guess, some of the main. Uh, main things that, that could and should be done better next time. It's funny too because when you think 
you know, what we initially heard in the pandemic was it was no big deal. And, oh, we've dealt with SARS. We dealt with SARS back in 2004, so we're all equipped. But there's, there's departments in every single government that, whose full-time job is to deal with this, and clearly none of them are doing their job. None of them are doing their job. So going forward, one would hope there's better oversight of that and that people will actually have sufficient P PPE, for example, in storage and, you know, be, be prepared, be much better prepared uh, for these kinds of issues. Thank you. I'll, I'll open it up to the commissioners for questions. There's no questions. Okay, <clears throat> you are you are too too clear and succinct, Catherine. But <laughs> <clears throat> thank you um, very much. I just uh, I had one follow up question because you indicated that you know we had communicated to government. So I assume you're talking about the um, the CCMBC. Do you recall what um, some of the communications were to the government? Yeah, actually, I'm going to provide those to you. I, I, I've been collecting them the last <laughs> the last few days because people had to go back in their you know go back in their uh, in their history. Um, uh, but they but they were you know they were uh, some of the things that that I've mentioned the, the notion mm -hmm. of having consistency in policies, giving firms notice too. That was one. Uh, you know, you can't implement something in five minutes uh, it, it reasonably. Uh, so giving firms notice if there was significant changes, which there were, you know, throughout the entire. Um, having having much simpler, um, uh, there, you know, there were some programs that intended to compensate businesses for things like um, having to put in partitions. I know one firm said they put in automatic doors so nobody had to touch anything. Um, and, you know, that accommodations like that um, make those programs simpler because they were so they were so convoluted to deal with an awful lot of businesses just said forget it I'll just spend the money because this is so ridiculously bureaucratic to you know to have to deal with it so simplifying that would be a good example but I'm going to be able to send you some stuff uh, once I sift through all these uh, all these emails that I've gotten from people super so we'll we'll add that then as exhibits when you you collect those well Catherine thank you very much for attending My on pleasure. behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry we thank you very much for your input great thank you Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.